Committee will come to order. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we uh, have uh, four nominations to hear this morning. And uh, just a uh, friendly reminder for our guests in the audience that uh, 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 we invite everyone's uh, participation here as a guest. Uh, expressions of approval or disapproval, et cetera, uh, of course, are not uh, permitted. And uh, there's an appropriate process for dealing with this. We hope that's not necessary. So uh, with that, uh, we're going to hear four important positions. Our nominees today are Mr. Andrew Bremberg to be ambassador to the UN mission in Geneva, uh, the Honorable Philip Goldberg to be ambassador to Columbia, Mr. Doug Manchester to be ambassador to the Bahamas, and Mr. Uh, Adrian Zuckerman to be ambassador uh, to Romania. Uh, first, we have uh, Mr. Bremberg nominated to serve as ambassador the Office of the United Nations and other international organizations in Geneva. Mr. Bremberg has a long history of public service and currently serves as assistant to the president and senior advisor for domestic policy at the White House. He previously worked, uh, as many of us here know, as policy advisor and counsel for Leader McConnell. He has also worked for the Department of Health and Human Services for eight years in a variety of capacities. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. in Geneva is a critical role which represents the U.S. at over 20 U.N. agencies based there. These agencies include the World Health Organization, the U.N. Refugee Agency, the International Organization for Migration, and the International Labor Organization, all very important organizations and others besides. Right now, the World Health Organization is facing a serious problem with the Ebola outbreak in DRC and Uganda. It is critical the U.S. continues to work closely with the World Health Organization to prevent the spread of this serious disease. The spread, of course, is also complicated by the uh, disruption, uh, political disruptions in the area. Also, as the world is facing a large refugee crisis now, the U.S. needs to work closely with the U.N. Refugee Agency and an International Organization for Migration to ensure that the growing needs are being addressed. I look forward to hearing from you on these and many other issues during today's uh, hearing. Next, we have Ambassador Philip S. Goldberg nominated to serve as Ambassador to Columbia. Ambassador Goldberg is a career minister in the U.S. Foreign Service and has received numerous presidential State Department and intelligence community awards. Ambassador Goldberg served as U.S. Ambassador to the Philippines and Bolivia, Chief of Mission in Kosovo, and Assistant Secretary of State for Intelligence and Research. Columbia is a key U.S. ally and the oldest democracy in Latin America with growing international footprint. Our bilateral relations are anchored in the security framework of the 1999 Plan Colombia and the 2012 U.S.-Columbia Free Trade Agreement. Colombia is going through a significant transformation as it seeks to implement the 2016 peace agreement between the Santos government and the FARC terrorist organization. Colombian peace and prosperity continues to be threatened by criminal organizations inside its territory. Terrorist groups from, uh, operating from Venezuela, such as the National Liberation Army, and the massive influx of refugees from the political and humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, which all of us, particularly I think myself and the ranking member, are very concerned. If confirmed, Ambassador Goldberg would fill a key role in strengthening our diplomatic relations with Colombia. Next, we have uh, Mr. Doug Manchester, nominated to serve as ambassador to the Bahamas. Mr. Manchester is a successful businessman and prominent philanthropist in his community. He is the former chairman of the Manchester Financial Group and former chairman and publisher of the San Diego Union Tribune. The United States has traditionally enjoyed close economic ties and cooperative relations with the Bahamas, which lies 45 miles from Florida. Like other countries in the hemisphere, 
The Bahamas has become a destination of interest for Chinese investment and engagement. The U.S. has not had an ambassador in the Bahamas since 2011, the longest gap in nearly 50 years. Some areas of productive engagement with the Bahamian authorities and people include energy investment, strengthening security cooperation, and support to counter Chinese predatory economic practices. I look forward to hearing from Mr. Manchester about how he plans to continue U.S. engagement with the Bahamas. Finally, we have Mr. Adrian Zuckerman of New Jersey, nominated to be ambassador to Romania. Mr. Zuckerman is a partner in the international law firm of uh, Sayforth Shaw. A member of the New York Bar, he has practiced law since 1984. Mr. Zuckerman immigrated to the United States from communist Romania when he was 10 years old. Romania is a key U.S. partner in Europe and currently holds the rotating presidency of the Council of the European Union. While they have been a NATO member since 2004 and an EU member since 2007, rampant corruption still remains an issue in the country. Romania continues to have difficulty with rule of law and has been designated a tier two country by the, by the State Department for its continuing problems with trafficking in persons, a serious situation. Despite these domestic issues, Romania has been an excellent military partner for the U.S. and NATO, and I look forward to hearing your ideas about how the U.S. can both deepen our bilateral relationship and continue to encourage positive reforms in Romania. Thanks to you for being uh, with us here today. Now uh, I'll turn it over to Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, to all the nominees, welcome, and uh, thank you for your willingness to serve. Now, normally I would use this time to praise the nominees before us for their deep knowledge and understanding of the region or institution where they will serve their extensive service to our country and the fine example we expect them to set as representatives of the United States abroad. However, with the exception of Ambassador Goldberg, I have strong concerns about each of these nominees today on this panel, from policy grounds and lack of diplomatic experience to concerns on matters of character. And I hope the nominees can convince me today that my concerns are groundless and mistaken. Let me be clear, while I'll be raising concerns about the backgrounds of views of the individual nominees who are here today, my real quorum is with the White House, which continues to send us nominees that, frankly, call into question whether the administration is conducting any due diligence before deciding who should be entrusted with the honor of serving the American people. Mr. Brenberg, if confirmed, you will represent the United States at the United Nations mission in Geneva at a time when in some parts of the world, including here in Congress, there is concern about the administration's commitment to multilateral institutions and international organizations and the values they are championing at these forums. Geneva is home to some of the most important UN entities and international organizations, including the International Labor Organization, the International Organization for Migration, the UN Office for the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, the UN Population Fund, the World Health Organization, and many others. If confirmed, you'll be responsible for advancing a wide range of U.S. interests at these organizations. I have no doubt that you have expertise on a number of domestic policy issues, but I have concerns about your nomination to such a prominent diplomatic role, given your lack of experience in international diplomacy and on foreign policy issues more broadly. And in addition, I have serious reservations about your suitability for this position based on some of the domestic policies you've advanced. 
While at the White House, you were involved in a number of troubling policies, including efforts to restrict access to birth control, to add a citizenship question to the census. You also played a lead role in championing a deregulatory agenda that has repealed measure to protect women's health, retirement security, workplace safety, clean water, and anti-corruption safeguards. If these are the American values you will seek to champion in Geneva, I believe we're in a world of trouble. As I stated earlier, I hope you can convince me otherwise, and I look forward to hearing from you today. Mr. Manchester, um, frankly, I'm surprised to see you back here. After your last appearance before the committee, you made statements that I, I, I couldn't find uh, fathomable, including that the Bahamas was a protectorate of the United States. Subsequent to your hearing and committee vote last Congress, information came out about hostile work environment you fostered towards women at the San Diego Union Tribune. So I look forward to exploring those issues with you uh, after your testimony. Mr. Zuckerman, when looking at Romania, I'm concerned about the rule of law and corruption. Transparency International ranks Romania as one of the bottom four members of the European Union in terms of corruption, and I've heard from members of the American business community that problems with due process and rule of law hinder U.S. business investments there. The U.S. ambassador to Romania must press the government of Romania on addressing corruption and strengthening its institutions to create a friendlier climate not only for Romania's people and businesses, but for U.S. companies as well. I intend to raise these and some other issues that I think you're familiar with uh, during your questioning. Finally, I'm pleased that we're considering the nomination for our next ambassador to Colombia, one of the United States' closest partners in the Americas. Over two decades, our countries have built a close-knit partnership, and the U.S. was proud to have stood with Colombia as it signed a historic peace accord in 2016. However, achieving peace requires a strategic vision and enduring commitment. So I look forward to hearing from Ambassador Goldberg as to how he envisions U.S. support for Colombia at this key moment, especially given the continued counter-narcotics challenges and threats to social leaders around the country. I welcome the Ambassador's comments on how the U.S. can best support Colombia as it responds to the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela and the impact of more than 4 million refugees and migrants that are fleeing that country. Thank you all, and I look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Senator Menendez. We'll start uh, with, Ms., uh, with Mr. Bremberg. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, distinguished members of this committee, thank you for the opportunity to be considered to represent the United States of America to the United Nations and other international organizations in Geneva. I want to thank the President for nominating me for this position and for the trust he has placed in me. I would not be here today without the support of my family my wife, Maria, my children, Paul, Lucy, Jane, and Annie, and other members of my family that are here with me today. I cannot thank them enough for their love and support and the sacrifices that they have made on my behalf. In particular, I want to thank my mother, Rebecca, for coming from New Jersey today. While growing up in Summit, her daily example of love and service to others has been the most formative experience of my life. Public service to our country has been my life's calling. I have served in government for more than a decade, both in the Senate and during two administrations. I have worked at the Department of Health and Human Services, and most recently I served as the Director of the Domestic Policy Council at the White House, where I ran the interagency process for domestic policy issues similar to the National Security Council. 
I have worked on a wide range of domestic and foreign policy issues in these positions, but through all of them, I have learned key skills that have served me well. The importance of consensus building and creating coalitions to support key initiatives, the value our career, foreign and civil services can bring to address technical and complex policy issues, and the necessity of putting the American people first at every decision point. If confirmed to, to be the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. in Geneva, I intend to focus on promoting human rights and advocating for key reforms in the U.N. system on behalf of the American people. American leadership was critical to the formation of the United Nations and adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. When we consider the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya in Burma, the detention of one million Uyghurs in China, and the growing crisis in Venezuela, it is clear that America's voice and moral clarity on human rights is needed today as much as ever. Regrettably, the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva has not lived up to its noble mission or its name. The only permanent item on the Council's agenda is criticism of Israel, which is a beacon of democracy and protection of human rights in a region that has little of either. If confirmed, I commit to giving voice to human rights issues that the Council is either incapable or unwilling to address. I will continue to work productively with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and I will meet with human rights activists and ensure that American leadership is consistently present on human rights. To legitimately fulfill its mandate, the Human Rights Council must be a fair, reliable, and impartial advocate for human rights and fundamental freedom. This is not possible if countries like China are allowed to use its influence campaign to undermine the work of the HRC. For example, we cannot stand for Chinese threats to missions in Geneva, urging them to stay away from an event organized on March 13th about China's internment of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. American leadership was essential to the creation of the United Nations, and we must pursue reforms to international organizations to protect the universal values these institutions were created to foster and defend in the first place. If confirmed, I will advocate for reforms at UN organizations to protect US sovereignty and the broader world order we have fought so hard to create. We contribute more to the United Nations than any other country. It is our duty to ensure these funds are spent effectively, efficiently, and in a manner consistent with American values and interests. An example of the kind of reform I am talking about is an effort I spearheaded at the White House to address unfair postal rates in the Universal Postal Union. The UPU sets rates that foreign postal operators, such as the China Post, compensate the US Postal Service for shipping small packages once they arrive in the United States. Under the current system, these rates are set so low that certain foreign shippers pay 70% less compared to what a US small business has to pay to ship a package the same distance within the United States. In practice, this allows some Chinese sellers to sell for less their product, including shipping, than an American business must pay for shipping costs alone. The administration is currently seeking to renegotiate the UPU conventions to address this issue, and I'm committed to working with our international partners to fix this problem. If confirmed, I commit to bring the same eye and initiative to other international organizations 
to seek reforms that will better protect Americans and people around the world. Thank you again for the opportunity to appear before this committee today, and I'll be happy to answer your questions. Thank you, Mr. Bremberg. Ambassador Goldberg. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, uh, members of the committee. I'm greatly honored uh, to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Colombia. This is the fourth time I've come before this committee over the past 13 years to ask for your advice and consent to serve in a presidential appointment. I deeply appreciate uh, the vital constitutional role played by the Senate and the Congress as a whole in the foreign policy process. If confirmed, I will work closely with Congress uh, on all aspects of our relationship with Colombia. Thirty years ago, uh, I received a miniature flag of Colombia and was informed that I'd be assigned to Bogota as a consular and political officer. The country at the time was racked with uh, drug-fueled violence, urban bombings, and political assassinations that threatened the future of democratic governance and stability. Through hard work and perseverance, the Colombian government and people, with the assistance of the government and people of the United States, disbanded the drug cartels of that era. In 2000, I ret returned to the embassy in Bogota uh, on a temporary assignment to coordinate our contribution to Plan Colombia, an integrated approach to deal with the deteriorating political, economic, and security situation in the country. Through Plan Colombia, the Colombian government and people, again, organized to address the lawlessness and violence associated with criminal groups and the drug production that sustained them. Kidnapping and homicides were reduced substantially. Drug production and trafficking decreased. Again, the United States stood at the side of the Colombian government and people as they averted the potential collapse of the state. In both periods, the success of our efforts was the result of unwavering support from successive American administrations, and bipartisan backing from the U.S. Congress. In my diplomatic career, Colombia served as a model for how bipartisan foreign policy can achieve results that serve American interests, American values, and the American people. Now Colombia has entered a challenging uh, but also very hopeful period in its history. In 2016, the Colombian government reached a historic peace agreement with the FARC. While implementation of the peace agreement has proven difficult and at times uneven, it represents the best opportunity to progress even further in key areas, particularly in extending rule of law and economic development to large areas of rural Colombia, where human rights abuses and the plight of the displaced continue to be serious problems. Another urgent task is reducing the coca cultivation and drug production that increased alarmingly from 2013 to 2017. To reverse this troubling trend, the United States and Colombia agreed in 2018 to a plan that aims to cut cultivation and drug production in half by the end of 2023. Aggressive Colombian efforts under the Duque government have already led to substantially increased eradication of coca plants and interdiction of coca paste. And then there's Venezuela, where a corrupt and undemocratic regime has driven well over a million desperate refugees and migrants into a generous Colombia causing social, economic, and budgetary challenges that exacerbate existing problems and create whole new ones. As the security situation in Colombia has improved over the past 20 years, so too has the economy. Colombia has become an important destination for U.S. trade and investment. Colombian GDP has almost quadrupled in the past 20 years. Foreign investment has increased during that time almost tenfold, 
and the poverty rate cut from 64 to 28%. Our two-way trade of close to $30 billion supports over 100,000 U.S. jobs and represents a trade surplus in goods in our favor. With improved security, tourism has grown, including to places that 30 year, years ago would have been unimaginable. If confirmed, I will do all I can to increase this side of our relationship, the economic uh, relationship. I would be honored to return to Columbia to lead the outstanding uh, men and women who serve at our large and multifaceted mission. If confirmed, I pledge to work with our team to carry out a bilateral agenda rooted in a shared commitment to democracy, security, and prosperity. I look forward to your questions. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Mendez, it's good to be back here, and I will answer your questions. Um, I am honored to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. I am deeply grateful to the President and Secretary Pompeo for the support and confidence that they have placed in me. If confirmed, I pledge to work closely with you and this committee and its staff and other members of Congress to advance our nation's interests in the Bahamas, which is so very, very important. <clears throat> we live in the greatest country in the world. I'm blessed to have been brought up here and born here. And I'm blessed with eight children and 13 grandchildren. I've also been blessed to be in this country to have success in insurance, real estate, medical instrumentation, broadcasting, publishing, construction, hotel ownership, development and oil drilling. I have operated 27, uh, 27 companies over the last 55 years with a total workforce of 6,000 people. Surrounded myself with outstanding and diverse group of employees and advisors. I believe this experience is integral and essential in managing a successful U.S. mission in the Bahamas as well as prepared me for the duties of an ambassador to the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. Since its independence as a sovereign nation in 73, the Bahamas has been a steadfast partner and neighbor of the United States. And given our shared interest, at its nearest point, the country lies barely 50 miles from the coast of Florida. We have cooperated as partners on security, commercial, and cultural and other issues. Together, we are confronting shared challenges such as illicit traffic, trafficking in narcotic arms and people, as well as the need to bolster the rule of law. If confirmed the ambassador, I affirm my intention to maintain the, and strengthen the United States collaboration with the Bahamas. If confirmed, I would take charge of the mission as forge strong diplomatic political ties with the government in Nassau. The Bahamas has been a leader in our drive to restore democracy in Venezuela, which is so very important. They have bravely stayed in a position supporting the government there under the leadership of Interim President Guaido. The Bahamas has taken the lead in the Caribbean and setting a bold example for the nations and regions to follow. The Prime Minister of the Bahamas joined President Trump last March at Maragalago, reinforcing our shared ties and steadfast commitment to the democracy and prosperity in this hemisphere. Through those political, uh, economic, and cultural ties, the United States and the Bahamas has forged a strong bilateral relationship that has served both countries well. Bahamians regularly travel to the United States to visit friends and family and conduct business. 
approximately 23,000 United States citizens are resident, have residence in the Bahamas and 6 million travel there annually for tourism. If confirmed, I'll strive to ensure the safety and security of the American citizens living in or visiting Bahamas. I will work closely with the Bahamian authorities, civil society groups, and guide the U.S. mission to promote innovative, effective, and whole-of-government efforts to reduce crime and other illegal activities. I will also continue to promote greater economic ties between the United States and the Bahamas for our mutual benefit. The Bahamas is an attractive destination for U.S. businesses and Bahamian authorities and offer stable and transparent, if they offer uh, stable and transparent regulations for procurement of business, we can in fact provide wonderful business opportunities for U.S. businesses. And we can, uh, and we can create the engine for their own development. Earlier this month, the embassy participated in a business conference that highlighted the advantages and opportunities for American businesses to develop investments and exports markets in the Bahamas. If confirmed, I intend to support efforts to further U.S. economic interests abroad. While generally speaking, and geography history have forged strong bonds between our countries, the Bahamas also maintains close economic ties with other nations we strongly believe the American companies can successfully complete with anybody in the world. In closing, I am confident that I will have the experience, commitment, and to lead our bilateral relationship with the people and the government of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. I confirm I pledge to uphold the tradition and high standards of public service expected of a U.S. ambassador. I look forward to the opportunity to continue to serve my country in this new capacity. Chairman Rich, Ranking Member Menendez, and Committee Members, I thank you and I open for questions. Thank you, Mr. Manchester. Uh, Mr. Zuckerman. Thank you, Chairman Brish, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I am honored to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to Romania. I am humbled and very grateful for the confidence President Trump has placed in me. I am also thankful to all of you for your consideration. Please allow me to introduce my daughter, Natalie. She, she represents our future, and I am fortunate she is with me here today. My voyage starts with two people who are here in spirit only. <clears throat> My beloved parents, Emil and Nora, were enough for their courage, wisdom, and sacrifice, um, <clears throat> I would not be here. Both were teenagers in Bucharest during the Second World War. Like so many of their contemporaries, their families were dislocated and their property was confiscated. Against all odds and against continuing discrimination against Jewish people in the post-war communist regime, they both survived and attended college and medical school. I was born in Bucharest, Romania. I can read, write, and speak Romanian fluently. Aware of the brutal shortcomings of the communist regime, my parents decided to emigrate about the time I was born. Some nine years later, we were allowed to do so with little more than the clothes on our backs. My parents cherished American values, hard work, and hope for a better future, freedom of speech, and utmost respect for life, liberty, and individual rights. Their proudest day was when they became American citizens. They made sure 
I always knew and remembered to appreciate and live by these hard-fought-for principles. Romania finally shed its horrific communist regime in December 1989, less than 30 years ago, a day I had always hoped for but never thought I would live to see. Since 1989, Romania established a democratic parliamentary form of government, joined NATO, joined the European Union, and has become a strategic ally of the United States. The strongest aspect of the U.S.-Romania relationship is our military cooperation. There is an American Aegis missile defense battery at Devasello. U.S. Army personnel are rotationally deployed at Kogalniciano Joint Military Base. U.S. Air Force units routinely deploy to Romania. And U.S. naval vessels dock at the Black Sea deepwater port of Constanza. Romania has stood in solidarity with the United States to condemn Russian intervention and aggression in Ukraine and strongly supports Ukraine's independence, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. Romania is also a wonderful host and partner to other NATO member state forces. Romania is a robust contributor to NATO missions and operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other countries. Romania has committed to meet its financial commitment to NATO. The Romanian economy has been among the fastest growing in the EU. Our trade and investment relationship has been increasing as well. Romania is rich in timber, agriculture, minerals, oil, natural gas, and other natural resources. Recent exploration in the Black Sea has discovered substantial oil and gas reserves, which have the potential to bolster Romania and Europe's energy security. Romania needs to continue to fight against corruption, create a more investment-friendly business climate, invest in infrastructure, health, education, and strengthen public administration. If confirmed, I would offer continued support for Romania's noteworthy anti-corruption efforts. Fighting corruption and supporting judicial independence are vital to Romania's long-term prosperity and security. The perils of an aggressive Russia seeking to destabilize democracies in Europe from within and without are substantial and cannot be underestimated. I am confident that with proactive American leadership and assistance to educate, support, and encourage democratic institutions, Romania will meet these challenges and prosper. If I am confirmed, I pledge to use all of my knowledge and experience toward advance our country's interests in Romania. Thank you for your consideration, <coughs> which will allow me, if confirmed, the opportunity to serve and repay, at least in part, the enormous debt of gratitude I have for everything America has given me and my family. <coughs> uh, I would be happy to answer any questions you may have. Senator Menendez, <coughs> I wish to point out that this morning, unfortunately, due to the endemic corruption issues that you referred to, Romania was downgraded to tier two watch status in the TIP report, which is unfortunate. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed, uh, I will make one of my chief priorities. Thank you. Thank you, <clears throat> Thank you Mr. Zuckerman. We're now gonna uh, conduct a round of uh, five minute questions. And uh, we will start uh, with Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Manchester, uh, 
When you were last before this committee, uh, you said that the Bahamas was a protectorate of the United States. The Bahamas is a sovereign nation. How do you expect to go to a country who you described as a protectorate and is a sovereign nation with its own democracy, elected leadership and whatnot, and be thought of in a way that will treat them with respect? Well, I answered that question and uh, the bottom line was the fact that I've been going there for years and I know that it's a sovereign, independent country. As I said in my previous testimony, and I certainly know uh, the fact that uh, it is a sovereign and independent nation and what I was referring to was the fact that we have joint defense for forces and we're joined at the hip, as we should be, to defending our mutual shores. Well, being a protectorate of the United States, words matter, especially when you're going to be an ambassador. Being a protectorate of the United States is not about mutual defense. Being a protector of the United States is almost like you're a ward of the United States. And so Bahamas is not a ward of the United States. I understood that you, and I corrected my statement. Let me, well, I, I didn't hear you correct your statement. I just heard you say that now you recognize it's a sovereign nation. I'm glad we've, we've come to that point. Let me ask you this. I want to talk about your time uh, running the San Diego Union Tribune. A 2018 Washington Post article described the environment for women who worked at the paper and its affiliated TV station, UTTV, as toxic. Speaking of you, one woman said that, quote, you don't want to get caught alone in the elevator with him. Others described the environment as madmen style, and the hiring meetings were like a boys' club, and the boys picked which women they wanted. To be clear, we're talking about 2011 to 2015, not 10, 20, or 30 years ago. Is this type of culture appropriate? I've been, invo I've been involved with uh, 55 years of business, 27 different companies, 6,000 employees, and that's a salacious and inaccurate uh, depiction. I've never been accused of sexual harassment, ever. And so do you have any objection, then, if that's the case, to diplomatic security or the FBI examining the accusations related to the workplace environment you fostered or you were alleged to have fostered at the Union Tribune and sharing their findings with members of this committee prior to the committee voting your nomination? I don't have any objection and never have. Let me ask you this. You were cited in the Washington Post article, which you said is salacious. Uh, this is, an, uh, this is a, uh, an article that was based on the conversations with more than 20 women and men. Uh, as saying that you took action to address, quote unquote, egregious mistakes by the staff at the San Diego Union Tribune. What were those mistakes? The, the, what, what I was referring to there is the fact that, uh, once again, I have not ever been involved in any kind of sexual harassment, a claim in 55 years of business and 6,000 employees. I don't know what they're referring to there. That's a, that was a this, this, is, this, this, is, this is your direct quote. You said that you took action to address, quote, egregious mistakes by the staff at the San Diego Union Tribune. Now, I'm asking you if you took, if you took uh, action to address egregious mistakes, what were those actions? What were the mistakes that you were correcting? Did you institute any disciplinary actions? Did you fire anybody? Uh, I mean, you're going to be the head, if you're confirmed, of a mission yeah. that is going to have a diverse, 
uh, both in gender, race, ethnicity, uh, uh, workforce. And we've got to know that at the very beginning that the person who's heading the embassy is going to create an environment that is uh, worthy of working in. So I want to understand, based upon your own remarks, what were the mistakes that the staff that you hired, what were the mistakes they created, and what did you do to correct those mistakes? We have instituted uh, policies in every one of the companies that I've been involved with that, in fact, if somebody, in fact, did something wrong, we, in fact, fired them. Who did you fire at the uh, San Diego Union Tribune then? Uh, I, I can't recall because of the fact that, that it was, I didn't work on a day-to-day -day basis for the individuals that were running the, the TV station, I think, that they're referring to. Well, I'm, you're, you're going to have to give me better answers than that. Mr. Bremberg, uh, this is the problem with uh, four panelists and uh, five minutes, so I know there will be another round at least. but. In your written answers to my pre-hearing questions about adding a citizenship question to the census, you stated that you, quote, discussed your opinion on including the citizenship status census question with other White House staff. What is your opinion on including a citizenship question on the census? Um, Senator, given my employment in the White House as an advisor to the President, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to discuss uh, the confidentiality. I didn't ask you that. I asked you your opinion. I didn't ask you what you said to the President. I asked you what your opinion is. What's your opinion? Yeah, yes, Senator. I, I believe disclosing my opinion on, on the matter would disclose, m open up for any further inquiry into what, my, what type what advice of I may What type of privilege are you asserting here? I'm, I'm, uh, Senator, I'm not asserting any privilege. Well, if you're not asserting any privilege, then how is it that you failed to answer a question of the committee at your confirmation hearing? Um, Senator, I'm happy to discuss any um, policy or I, I can This help is a policy. You're going to be going to an institution that has among the wide array of issues the questions of uh, uh, people in refugee status, the questions of, of people uh, in uh, a series uh, of ways in which views such as this are insightful for the committee to understand how you're going to act at that location. I, I understand, and I'm happy to s describe the policy. I just want to be careful. Um, I, I know other nominees who have come before the committee that have served in the White House have not gone down the road of providing their personal opinion, but I'm happy to articulate the administration's position. This is not an attempt to distance myself from it. I'm just being clear that I'm not just providing my personal opinion. I can describe the reason behind the policy that the Census Department put forward, if that's what you'd like to hear, Senator. No, I, 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 I asked a specific question. You're smart enough to give me a specific answer. So I'm sending a letter to you today, uh, which I ask unanimous consent to be entered into the record. It will be. I have to understand, uh, as I continue to ask you questions of this and other nature, if you're going to exert privileges, you're going to tell me what privilege you're asserting. Uh, because as far as I'm concerned, there's no rational basis for a privilege to be asserted when I ask you things that are not directly in conversations with the President of the United States, but that go to an insights into the policy views you will hold at a critical institution. Thank you. <clears throat> Senator, we will have a second round and, uh, with uh, enough time. Uh, after that, we will go to Senator Paul. They say uh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and I'm not saying you are beautiful, but I am saying <laughs> that each of you seem to have attributes that I think would be good as ambassadors. 
Um, I was told by people who jumped to conclusions that I couldn't be a senator because I'd just been a doctor, that a doctor wasn't somehow smart enough unless I'd been a state rep or a state <laughs> senator or this and that. And I really think we all bring attributes from different, different walks in life. I've dealt with Mr. Bremberg in the White House. I find him to be intelligent, uh, forthright, and I think he'll do a good job. Um, I don't know Mr. Goldberg, but his resume sounds impeccable, you know, as a career. But I think we have career people, and we also have political people. Uh, Mr. Manchester's been successful in business. What does that mean? Well, capitalism is uh, very, very selective. Um, most businesses fail. Um, to succeed with 6,000 employees and 27 companies means that on a day-to-day -day basis, he's running a business and making the decisions that not just please him, capitalists have to please their customers and everybody that invests in them, they have to make a profit. Uh, capitalism is a very uh, demanding sort of uh, person to work for. And so to have succeeded through all those years meant that Mr. Manchester has made many wise decisions over time. Mr. Zuckerman, I was impressed not only with your background and your family background, but I think languages are important. The fact that you speak the language will be a big asset to being an ambassador to Romania. So I'm actually very impressed with the panel, very impressed with the president. People said President Trump couldn't be president because he hadn't been a state representative or a governor or this and that. And so I don't think that really intelligence or your ability to figure out problems comes from having a previous position. It comes from um, your desire, your background, and also to acknowledge sometimes we don't know things and you ask for advice. Um, I get help from my staff on a daily basis who know things uh, that I don't know, and I ask for that advice. And I think it's the same with an ambassador as well. Um, I do think it's important, though, in an era where people make accusations that are very personal, and I think the accusations against Mr. Manchester are very personal. It doesn't sound like he had any personal involvement. He was sort of the owner of a company that had probably 10 layers between him and the employees. He's never been accused of anything, but all of a sudden he's caught up in something that I think uh, is really bad because he's judged without having a, a chance to, to defend himself. And we live in an era where people are making these accusations all the time. 40 years ago, somebody in high school said this, and it's like, we live in this world, and do, do people not deserve some sort of due process before people, you know, Mr. Manchester's well-known in San Diego. He's not only a successful businessman who makes a profit at businesses by pleasing customers, but he's a philanthropist, and I think it's wrong to drag his name through the mud, um, particularly for something that there's never been a personal accusation against Mr. Manchester. So I just hope as we go through this that we will give people the benefit of the doubt and uh, also to consider that people have attributes from different, um, from their different backgrounds. They don't always mean they've been an ambassador to this or that in the, in the past. Um, Mr. Manchester, is there anything else you wanted to say about, uh, you know, how, how difficult it is to succeed in business, how you got started in business? No, I just want to make it clear that uh, I actually, in a position where I really believe that it's important for us to have U.S. representation in Bahamas because of the Chinese influence and other reasons. But, and I am uh, volunteering for that assignment, and I recognize that it's going to be a hard job, but it's a needed job, and I am, it's a way in which I can pay back my country for all of the blessings that I've received uh, for my family and myself. Thank you. I have no further questions. Senator Shaheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, Senator Paul, I, I certainly agree with you, and I think all of us do, that um, people bring different attributes 
to the job and that to get to this point, um, everyone has significant attributes. But I do believe when there are personal allegations made against nominees, that it's very important to reassure the public about the integrity of the process and the people who will be representing this country for anyone who is the subject of those accusations to be able to rebut them adequately to persuade the public that they are not true and that they will not influence the ability to do the job. So I think it's very important for the committee to be able to reassure people about the integrity of the individuals we support. So I hope, Mr. Manchester, that you will be able to rebut those accusations in a way that make it clear that you were not involved. Um, Once again, I've been involved 55 years of business in 27 different companies, amounting to over 6,000 employees, and I've never had a sexual harassment claim against me. And we've, we've hired and um, promoted to the highest level all ethnic and sexual orientation uh, employees, and we're very proud, very proud of, of the success that we've had and the companies that we have been involved with. Um, good. I look forward to hearing more uh, about that. Um, Mr. Bremberg, for decades, the United States has been the leader in advocating for human rights, especially the rights of women and girls. If confirmed as the U.S. representative to the U.N. in Geneva, you will lead a team that's responsible for advancing U.S. policy on human rights and global health. Do you recognize reproductive rights and the rights of the LGBT community as human rights? Um, Senator, I, I do recognize and accept that reproductive rights as defined um, by the 1995 Beijing Conference Strategic Objective and under the objective in line with the program of action of the International Conference on Population and Development as um, important rights, but those state that in no case should abortion be promoted as a method of family planning. So yes to your question. I'm not asking you to promote abortion, but thank, just thank you. that you recognize that reproductive rights are important human rights yes. around the world. And how about the LGBTQ community? Yes, Senator. You recognize, and will you defend, and if you are confirmed for this position, will you defend those rights in your new position? Yes, Senator. And in, in your capacity as the director of the Domestic Policy Council, were you ever involved in discussions to expand the global gag rule that restricts foreign assistance to groups that provide a full range of family planning services? Uh, Senator, I, yes, I participated in the um, development and implementation of the president's expanded Mexico City policy, which we're and referring to. Have you seen any of the reports about the impact of that expanded policy on women and families in countries that are affected? And have you made any attempt to get information about what the, the real impact of those policies have been? Uh, yes, Senator, and I look forward to learning more. Um, in my time during the White House, I was briefed on its implementation, um, I believe approximately a year into its implementation. Um, one particular question that I and others were asking was, um, was this actually a difficult policy for our grantees and contractors to implement or adopt, or was it relatively easy? Um, I, I'm happy to get the number for you, but I recall at the time of, of hundreds, I believe upwards of 500 in, entities, I think they had only had concerns raised or problems with, I believe, 
three to five. I, I don't have the precise number. I'm happy to get back to you, Senator. Um, but I would I'd very ask, much like to have you get back to me because when I have asked that question of the USAID administrator and of the Department of State, I have been told by both of those that they are awaiting reports on what the impact is of those policies and that we don't have that information yet. So if that information exists within the White House and it is not being shared, I think that's a huge oversight. So I would very much like to see, Mr. Chairman, I hope that um, those that information will be shared with the full committee. Thank you, um, now, Ambassador Goldberg, you talked about the commitment that had been made to Colombia and about the progress that's been made in that country, and I think we would all agree that that's been very important. Um, but despite that commitment, uh, what we have seen is that Colombia remains uh, an origin of a lot of the poppy growing that we're dealing with and the drug trafficking that has such a huge impact in the United States on states like mine in New Hampshire where we have um, the third highest overdose death rate in the country. So I wonder if you can tell me as ambassador what you will do to try and continue to work with the Colombian government to address this huge problem that's affecting the United States. The, the Colombian uh, government at the moment, uh, and we have agreed, as I mentioned in my statement, to a five-year plan to cut uh, production of coca and interdict uh, coca paste and the finished product uh, that is underway. And we've seen some progress in that regard. It's a difficult problem, obviously, especially since wide areas of the country remain under control of uh, criminal elements, whether, whether they're the dissident FARC or their ELN or their paramilitaries or their drug cartels. And so uh, the government has this program, uh, and we are assisting uh, with it uh, to try to reduce uh, the uh, production of coca and uh, the drugs that come out of Colombia. We also have a commitment to reduce demand uh, in Colombia and here, uh, and that's an important element as well. It's an integrated approach. They have a very sophisticated uh, way about going after money laundering uh, and so as ambassador, if confirmed, I would want to work very closely with them as they go about carrying out this plan. Well, thank you. I would like to hear more. I'm out of time. Um, so we will submit some questions for the record to try and get more information. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for your desire to serve our country as ambassadors. Uh, I am most grateful. Uh, ambassador Goldberg. Venezuelans continue to flee into Colombia after the reopening of the border in the past month. Colombia is now hosting more than 1.2 million Venezuelan migrants, as you know, according to most estimates. What do you view as the immediate challenges and priorities for managing the arrival of, of Venezuelans, uh, such as the provision of shelter, food, and emergency health care? As the situation has developed, Senator, the uh Population has uh, of Venezuelan migrants uh, and refugees has dispersed uh, from the border region into other areas. 
but it is a problem. Uh, it's a huge budgetary uh, requirement for the Colombians. Uh, estimates are anywhere from $1 to $1.3 billion this year. So the immediate needs are in uh, health, in education, and as you mentioned, uh, shelter. They're huge challenges. And we uh, have uh, helped uh, very strongly in that regard, uh, directing more than half of the uh, humanitarian assistance that we have uh, committed to, in, uh, to, to help with the Venezuelan situation uh, to Colombia, about $143 million, uh, thanks uh, to action in, in Congress. So uh, those are the challenges, and the Colombians are going about it. USAID is very much involved in trying to help, uh, but you know this is ultimately a challenge that the Colombians will have to bear the, the great brunt of. As well as, by the way, uh, the NGOs that are very active, UNHCR, uh, and, and all of the uh, humanitarian groups that are there. So it's, a, it's an active and ongoing effort. So uh, what additional support do you anticipate the multilaterals, uh, the, those you mentioned and others, uh, needing to provide uh, Colombia and, and the host communities in, in coming months? I, I wouldn't put a, a figure on it, but substantial. Uh, and I was uh, uh, somewhat concerned when I heard uh, the UN representatives say uh, that uh, the commitments are only uh, uh, resulting in about 30% of what was pledged. Uh, so we have to continue to uh, try to uh, help the Colombians as they take on this, this huge burden. And so it's uh, an effort for governments, and uh, we have to do it diplomatically, as well as with the Colombians to make sure that they uh, have the resources necessary. And Mr. Bremberg uh, will, of course, need to be working through the United Nations on, on this and, and many other uh, matters. And uh, uh, that will include the UN mission in Geneva. The United States has currently assessed 20 2% of, of the UN regular budget and 28.4% of UN peacekeeping operations, uh, the budget there. Um, so over the years, members of this committee and on the multilateral institution subcommittee, which I chair, have debated at appropriate levels of US support for the United Nations. Are you satisfied with the current process and formulas for determining US assessments? Uh, no, Senator. Th thank you for the question. Um, no, and I, um, I think the administration has put forward a strong case for transforming the current assessed model of assessed contributions towards a voluntary contribution model. Um, and I think that would you know, serve the interests of the United States, and in fact, I believe, even over the term, serve the interests of the various UN international organizations more by helping to make sure they become more efficient and accountable to member states. Uh, do you pledge to work with me on that and, and uh, allow me to be supportive of your efforts uh, on, on that front, uh, should you be confirmed? Yeah, yes, Senator. I, I would appreciate any support you could provide, and I pledge to work with you on this and other topics. Thank you much. I yield back. Thank you, Senator Young. Uh, Senator Cardin. Well, I join in thanking you all for your willingness to serve our nation and thank your families, because we know this is a family matter. Uh, Mr. Goldberg, we had a, a chance to talk um, as the ranking Democrat on our hemisphere. Uh, having a confirmed ambassador in Colombia is critically important, and I appreciate your background, and I hope we can move your nomination uh, quickly. 
Mr. Bremberg, um, this committee I worked on with Senator Lugar, the transparency in the extractive industries, Section 1504 of the Dodd-Frank Act. Regulations took a long time to be promulgated. We ultimately got regulations, and after a long process where, uh, in which other nations of the world followed the U.S. leadership uh, in regards to requiring extractive industry companies to disclose their contracts amounts so that the revenues could go to the country rather than to corruption. We made progress. And then, uh, under Mr. President Trump, a decision was made to use the CRA to eliminate many of the regulations that were adopted uh, in the previous administration. This, of course, came out of the SEC. Were you aware of the strategy to use the CRA in regards to Section 1504? Uh, yes, Senator. And the concerns that were expressed at the time that they thought the regulation was overly broad and required information that was proprietary. I disagree with that analysis, but that was the major justification given. And there was a lot of interest to get the SEC to issue uh, a regulation consistent with those concerns. What efforts have you made to get the SEC to act on 1504? Um, in my time in the White House, after the repeal of the regulation through the CRA, um, the domestic policy portfolio view did not cover the SEC. The National Economic Council covers the SEC, so that's not something that was in my portfolio. Were you involved at all in the CRA involving 1504? Did you have any conversations with that? Uh, yes, Senator. Could, could, I could I describe that briefly? Well, I I'm interested in your views as to how you're going to represent our nation uh, in uh, multilateral discussions when the extractive industries and in dealing with corruption and dealing with the poverty nations that have resource wealth your, how, how do you intend to deal with that if the only action I've seen is to block efforts for disclosure here in America where other countries have already acted on disclosure? Th th thank you, Senator. I, I believe the, the administration worked with Congress to pass that CRA to repeal that regulation because we and many felt it was overly burdensome for the extraction industry in the United States and would lead to substantial potential job losses in the United States and putting U.S. companies at an unfair disadvantage versus foreign um, competitors. And of but, course, it's up to Congress to make the policy decision. You're supposed to implement it in the executive branch. Absolutely. As, as a, a firm um, believer in the Article I power, I'm a firm believer in that. And in fact, um, and if I could describe a little bit of my work on the CRA, Senator. I would like to know your I, work on implementing 1504. I, I, I believe the CRA is an excellent tool and actually a power by Congress. It's a way of Congress correcting what they believe to what you But believe. you encouraged us to correct this, and the president signed it. And you know when the 1504 became law? You know how many years ago it was? I, I believe nine years ago. And do we have regulations under 1504? Um, this isn't an area of my expertise, but I believe the first regulations that were implemented under the Obama administration, I believe, were challenged in the courts, and I believe were struck down and had problems. And I think the regulations- On technical reasons, not on substantive. I understood. And I think the final regulation that the CRA actually undid, what, I mean, the Obama administration, I don't believe finalized it until- But it's the domestic advisor. What, what action have you taken to, to comply with what was said to Congress that you, you favored 1504, you thought the regulations were wrong, now we don't have any regulations at all. It's been now almost two years. 
uh, since yeah, the yes. CRA passed. And, and, and I think, I, I, think the, I don't want to speak just for myself, I think the administration would look forward to working with Congress on amending the law to, make, to put in place an appropriate disclosure mechanism. We don't want to amend the law. We want regulations. We spoke. It's not your job to interpret whether we did the right thing or not. You, your, your job is to implement that. And, and with respect, Senator, then Congress then spoke again. On and, the regulation, but not on the law. Right, and, and, and amended. So is it your position that you will not enforce a law passed by Congress? No, no, no Senator, absolutely not. And, and to your specific part about the SEC's rulemaking part, I'm, I'm not trying to dodge your question, Senator. My role is in the domestic policy side. That within the White House policy structure, there, you know, we have the National Security Council, there's a National Economic Council, which was previously headed by Gary Cohn and is now headed by Larry Kudlow. The National Economic Council is the chief policy part of the White House that works with the SEC. The SEC was never part of my policy portfolio. I'm, I'm sorry for the confusion, Senator. Well, Mr. Chairman, I, I would like to have this, this I would like you to inform us as to what the administration's policy is in regards to 1504, implementing a law that was passed by Congress nine years ago. Uh, we're not interested in amending the law. We're interested in enforcing the law. Can you get me that? I, I, I'd be happy to provide a response for the record to, to, to a question about what the administration, whatever your question is, Senator. My question what, is, what the plan what, is to move forward? Is that your question? Yes, to implement I'm, I'm the law. I'm happy to provide a response for the record. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for being here, for your, all your, of you willing to serve our, our country. Um, I wanted to focus uh, my questions primarily on the, the situation with Colombia and, and, and as it regards Venezuela. Um, yeah, I think of all the places we're talking about today, it's the most uh, urgent and, and, and uh, before us at this moment uh, has the highest uh, national urgency for our national interest. It, it, Mr. Ambassador Goldberg, it, it is impossible to separate the challenges and the work that we do with Colombia from the conflict in Venezuela. That would be an accurate assessment. Yes, it is. And, and I think most people are not aware that the elements that threaten the state in, in, in Colombia and that uh, are most responsible in many ways for the trafficking of billions of dollars of drugs into the United States, Europe, and around the world operate openly and with impunity and, in fact, with the support and cooperation of the Maduro regime just across the Venezuelan, uh, Colombian-Venezuelan border, right? Correct. I mean, so what we have in Colombia is not just our strongest counter-drug partner in the region, probably our strongest uh, ally on multiple fronts in the region, we have a country that literally has, just on the other side of its border, armed groups that seek to kill uh, their citizens and conduct uh, violent attacks within their territory. We have these armed groups operating in camps and facilities openly with the protection, the assistance, and the cooperation of a neighboring government. Largely correct. The reason why I ask in that, because related to that, when you add that to the, to the migrant flow, that is the capability of the ELN and these dissident FARC groups to operate openly with a safe space in a, in a neighboring country, combined with the incompetence, corruption, mismanagement, 
of the Maduro regime leading to the outflow of over four million of its citizens, including at this point, I guess, over a million and a half into one country alone. The combination of these two things, uh, and I think you've alluded to this already, both in your opening statement and in your answer to several questions, are placing a, uh, almost an existential challenge uh, to all of the progress that's been made in Colombia and potentially to the ability of the state long term. As I mentioned, Senator, uh, in fact, I consider that the problems brought by the Venezuela crisis exacerbate everything that Colombia is trying to do and creates whole new issues. Uh, so it is a huge problem uh, for Colombia. Uh, I would just add that you know, some of the, the dissident FARC and, uh, are also in, in Colombian territory and, of course, are uh, also involved in uh, some of the drug trade and, uh, and uh, have returned to that business. Right. But at, at least when it comes to those groups are dangerous as well. But at least when it comes to the groups that are in Colombian territory, the Colombians can get to them That's and right. can conduct operations against them. Right. They basically can't do anything without going to war. That's uh, right. Uh, so uh, the, the, the point I, I think when it comes to Venezuela policy, perhaps one of the failures has been because of how quickly it's moved it. I don't think we have done a good enough job of explaining to the American people why it is in our national interest to care about it beyond the fact that we support democracy and the suffering of the people there, but why does it matter to America? And one of the arguments I've tried to make and others have as well is this is not just about Venezuela. This is spiraling into a regional crisis that directly impacts the national security and national interest of the United States. And I would ask, because you have expertise in this part of the world and, 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 and are going to be serving our country, hopefully, in, from Colombia, what would our war, or what would our efforts against the flow of drugs into the United States look like if we did not have a strong partner in Colombia with the capability and the resources that they need to help us confront those challenges? Well, as I mentioned to Senator Shaheen, we are now engaged in a very active effort to try to lower the production. Uh, it's difficult because of these areas that are not yet under government control. So uh, while that situation continues, and if it becomes greater, uh, then uh, there's a almost mathematical proposition that the uh, drugs would uh, be more difficult to uh, eradicate and to interdict. So it would be uh, a worse problem. Yeah, I think the Colombians deserve a tremendous amount of credit for all they've done to receive these people who have come across the border, suffering people, people that are scared. But I would just want to close with this point. I don't think you would disagree with it. And that is the more resources they've had to dedicate to that and the strains it places on their healthcare system and the like, the less resources are potentially available to, to confront this challenge. And that ultimately spills over to us. And so I just don't want us to underestimate what is going to happen to Colombia. I know you do not. In the years to come, in the months to come, if the situation in Venezuela continues on the trajectory that it's on now, the, 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 the situation in Venezuela poses a direct threat, not just to Colombia, but ultimately to U.S. national interests in, in the region. I agree. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Rubio. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, um, very much. Thank you for this hearing. Um, Mr. Bremberg, um, if you're confirmed, you'll be working with the Office uh, of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, UNHCR. Yesterday, UNHCR reported that more than 70 million people worldwide have been forced from their homes 
uh, the highest number of displaced people on record. Yet under this administration, as outlined in a report from Amnesty International that was also released yesterday, refugee resettlement in the United States dropped 71% uh, over the last uh, two and a half years. Uh, I have a copy of the Amnesty International report. Mr. Chairman, I would ask unanimous consent that it be included in the record. Thank you. And the Trump administration has proposed a $2 billion cut to UN humanitarian agencies like UNHCR that has helped these displaced populations overseas. Um, yes and no, uh, Mr. Bremberg, do you believe that it is in the United States' national interest to help address this historic humanitarian crisis? Um, absolutely, Senator. I think it's absolutely in the American interest, not just in our security interest, but in part of our greater humanitarian human rights example. And I'm proud that the United States is the largest funder of humanitarian efforts around the world. <clears throat> but again, the Trump administration has proposed a $2 billion cut in yes. UN humanitarian agency help. So you wind up with saying the right thing on the one hand, and on the other hand, you know, proposing a cut that would be even more devastating than what we're already living through. So I, I, th I think part of the issue is that we, we need to see other countries to step up and do their fair share as it relates to helping address these humanitarian crises around the world. I believe <coughs> even if you suppose those cuts, I believe the, that just shows the level of our generosity. I believe the United States would still be the largest single donor for humanitarian efforts around the world. And what we really need to do, and I look forward to doing this if confirmed, is work with other countries to increase the level of support that they are willing to provide to address these issues. I appreciate that, but at the same time, we're at a historic high in terms of the number of refugees. So there, in my opinion, has to be a concomitant increase in our commitment, not a $2 billion cut. So even national security officials, whether they be Democrat or Republican administrations, they all agree that our refugee programs help our recruitment of intelligence assets abroad, they counter anti-Western propaganda, promote regional stability in foreign countries, hosting large numbers of refugees. And that's why I recently introduced a bill, the GRACE Act, to prevent this administration from continuing its efforts to slash refugee admissions and dismantle our resettlement infrastructure. There's just been a dramatic reduction in the number of refugees which the United States has accepted over the last two and a half years since Donald Trump took over. And, uh, and this new budget is just a further continuation of that. So UNHCR has encouraged the United States to maintain its historic leadership role supporting refugees. What do you intend to do about the United States position if you're handcuffed by having to advocate for cuts in our programs while simultaneously saying to other countries that they should increase? How in the world can you maintain such a contradictory position and hope to be successful in eliciting a response from these other countries. Uh, th thank you, Senator, for the opportunity to, to address that. Um, the, the, the reduction in the refugee cap is only one part of our larger, not just humanitarian effort, but also our effort to bring in individuals from other countries here into the United States. As we've seen, we face a asylum crisis largely at our southern border. The United States still welcomes um, more refugees and asylees than any other country in the world. I, I recognize these are two different legal distinctions, but as we've seen the, the asylum crisis grow 
um, unchecked and we're struggling with both resources and legal authorities to address the asylum crisis, I think by definition, it makes sense then that unfortunately we're having to pull back on some of our other refugee activities. So I think, sorry. No, I, I'm, oh, um, I'm just going um, to say that there's a humanitarian crisis out there right now. It's unprecedented. And the United States should not be going backwards. We have to step up. We, we're the wealthiest country in the world. The president says we're the wealthiest country ever right now. So we should, we should just, out of the generosity of our spirit, be reaching out to these people and uh, not waiting for other countries, but leading by our example and then saying to the other countries that they should be stepping up. It's just a complete disaster out there, Mr. Bremberg. And, um, and my hope is that you could be an advocate internally, but that's not what I'm hearing from you. I'm, I'm hearing you reflecting that philosophy that we have to cut our own aid in order to ultimately see increases from other countries. And I just don't think that that's sound. Thank you. Um, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to each of you on your nominations. Uh, Mr. Goldberg, uh, I want to ask you some questions about the opportunities and, and the challenges in Colombia. Uh, the country is our largest foreign aid recipient in the region. Uh, we've spent upwards of $10 billion since 2000. Uh, and Colombia is our only NATO partner in Latin America. Uh, nevertheless, there are a range of challenges that pose direct threats to American national security, from narco-trafficking to the cascading effects of what's happening in Venezuela. Um, first, I want to ask you just very basically, what do you perceive as our national security interests and our objectives in Colombia? Well, I think there are a nexus of interests, Senator Cruz. Uh, one of them clearly uh, is the drug problem. Uh, another is uh, what's going on in Venezuela and the uh, dangers that that uh, represents to United States national security. Uh, there are possibilities and opportunities uh, to uh, move the process in Colombia forward. Uh, part of the problem, as I was discussing with uh, Senator Rubio, is that the Venezuela situation uh, draws uh, resources from what might be used for uh, doing other things uh, that are important on the peace process, uh, on drugs. Uh, but the opportunity is uh, the challenge that's always existed in, in Colombia uh, and something that we've worked uh, throughout time, uh, at least the 30 years I've been uh, involved with it, uh, trying to make sure that Colombia has the resources and the training and the military cooperation, the police cooperation, to extend uh, the state and the state presence in uh, larger parts of the country so that there's more rule of law, there's more uh, economic development. And those are all crucial uh, factors in how Colombia can uh, handle many of the problems that it faces at a much reduced level uh, thanks to everything that's happened in the last 20 years uh, but still exist and, and uh, that still need to uh, be uh, dealt with. One of the many challenges in Colombia is, is the FARC uh, retains designated as a foreign terrorist organization under U.S. law. Uh, how does this impact our government interests and how we interact with the government of Colombia now that FARC is politically represented? Well, the FARC uh, senator uh, has uh, representatives uh, in 
the Congress in the Senate and the House uh, that were uh, designated by the peace agreement. Uh, and so we, uh, in dealing with uh, the political uh, situation, can have some contact. It would be very difficult in most uh, interactions, especially when it comes to U.S. assistance, uh, to uh, deal with the FARC because it's uh, still listed as a, a terrorist organization. Uh, Mr. Bremberg, uh, the Geneva Post is, is, is always a challenging and, and delicate post for our diplomats. It's a place where enormous good work can be done to advance human rights, but unfortunately many of the, US, the UN's human rights organizations have been taken over by people with atrocious human rights records uh, who don't particularly care about protecting human rights. Uh, how do you intend to navigate that challenge? Thank you for the question, Senator. Um, that's clearly something that the Trump administration has taken on um, head on. Um, that's largely part of the reason why the administration withdrew from the Human Rights Council uh, one year ago last summer. Um, and if confirmed is why I wish to make advancing human rights one of my priorities in Geneva. Um, the United States does not need to be a member of the council to lead on human rights. Um, every country looks to the United States and our voice on human rights. Um, and, and if confirmed, I commit to speaking on human rights in Geneva. Um, re re you know, building on the good work the mission has already begun to do re recently, our mission in Geneva um, held a, uh, a, a conference to highlight the gross human rights violations going on um, against <laughs> Uyghurs um, in, in China. Um, it was quite disturbing to hear reports of the Chinese mission there threatening other um, you know, multilateral missions, trying to prevent them from participating and attending. But, but that type of leadership on um, that and other human rights issues um, will be my priority if I'm confirmed. Um, well, I certainly encourage you in that regard. And let me in particular encourage you the, the power of highlighting dissidents. Uh, it's something I've tried to do in the Senate of, of, of naming and shining a light on courageous heroes who, who stand up to oppression. And one of the most potent tools against tyranny, against human rights abuses, is telling the stories of these dissidents who risk everything. And, and, and that has enormous, enormous power and, and, and it is something that tyrannies consistently fear. I, I, I certainly agree, and I, I believe not just, I believe the power that dissidents coming here to Congress and meeting with mem elected members, I think that's a great platform. I also think so many human rights activists come through Geneva specifically, and the importance of having a U.S. ambassador there that will meet with them, hear their concerns, and then give voice to that, both publicly and then privately in bilateral conversations with other countries, I think is really important. Um, and if confirmed, you have my commitment that I will do that. And I would just like to ask you and, and other members of the committee um, that if there are individuals that you have already met with mm -hmm. or that you know that are you know, in Geneva, that it would, it would be important for us as the United States to highlight and, and speak to, um, I would really look forward to working with you. Terrific. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Senator Keene's going to yield, I understand, to Senator Menendez. Okay. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Unfortunately, I have to go to the floor on the Saudi arms sales shortly. So, uh, Mr. Bremberg, I, I'm trying to understand your logic. We have the highest number of refugees in the history of the world, 70 million. You're suggesting that cutting 2 billion is a way to show American leadership. I don't understand that. I know you say you want to get other countries to pay for more. Of course, we all, always want to do that. But cutting $2 billion 
somehow creates the incentive for other countries to uh, gain more. And you're wrong about uh, uh, the, America, the United States being the greatest uh, uh, recipient of refugees and asylees. Germany, Germany alone took a million asylees. So that's not the case. Let me ask you this. Do you know a gentleman named Thomas Hoffeller? I'm sorry, could you, could you repeat the A gentleman Thomas? named Thomas Hoffeller, H-O-F-E-L-L-E-R. I, I don't believe so, Senator. Uh, you've never had could a conversation you, with him? Could you identify his background or who he is? I, He's the gentleman who came up with the idea for the census oh. question, the citizenship question on uh, the census. N no, Senator. I, I do not know, nor have I ever met or spoken or communicated with. Let me ask you this. When you, you authored a draft executive order on January 23rd of 2017, three days after the president was inaugurated, which would have directed the Census Bureau to add a question on citizenship and immigration status. How did you get the idea to include the citizenship issue in the draft EO? Senator, it would not be appropriate for me to comment on alleged leaked draft White House documents, but I'm happy to discuss, again, the, the, the policy issue, if you wish. So it was, well, you're, when you say it's not appropriate, there was a draft, do, do you deny there was a draft executive order that you prepared? Se Senator, I, I don't believe it's appropriate for me to talk about draft deliberative well, under, documents. Under what type of privilege are you saying you can't answer my questions? Uh, Senator, I, I very much wish to answer your question about the policy, but um, I believe it is the custom of under you know both Republican and Democrat administrations that when White House aides come to testify for nominations, um, they don't. On what type of privilege are you saying you cannot answer my questions? I, I'm not exerting a privilege. Senator. You're not exerting a privilege. So if you're not exerting a privilege, how is it that you fail to answer my questions? I, I would very much like to answer your question. Then please do so. Um, could, could you just repeat the, 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 the policy question, Senator? What, what, where did you get the idea to include the citizenship issue in the draft executive order? So, so, so can I just talk about the, I believe you suggested there's a, there's a draft executive order dated very early in the administration that you're suggesting I wrote. I, I can't comment on this alleged draft, but can I tell you about my work in the transition and right into the immediate context of the administration about what work I did? No, that, I, I, uh, that would take forever and I, I can have be the time very for that. Uh, I want to know about the citizenship question, but you don't want to answer that. Let me ask you Can I answer? You, you haven't answered it. You the, haven't the first time? It. Let me ask you this. You authored a draft memo to uh, the president which said that, quote, households headed by aliens are much more likely than households headed by native-born citizens to use federal means-tested public benefits. Do you agree with that statement? No, Senator, I do not. Okay, so what changed your mind? Um, nothing has ever changed my mind on that topic. Again, I can't, I, I wish, wish I could talk do you, about do you, do you deny that you authored such a memo? Um, I have never written that sentence, Senator. You've never written that sentence. So did, it, did, did such a memo go under your name? Senator, when I came into the White House, there were many, many memos and draft executive orders that have been prepared for consideration by for President Trump during the presidential transition. Many memos and executive orders. Let me go to another I, issue. Uh, in my pre-hearing uh, questions for the record, I asked whether you participated in any meetings related to the administration's decision to terminate TPS designations for El Salvador, Haiti, and Honduras. You said you don't recall participating in any meetings. Yet, uh, the fact is that we have information uh, that the Domestic Policy Council, of which you are the director, 
sought repeatedly to influence a decision-making process at the State Department and DHS to ensure that TPS designations for El Salvador, Haiti, and Honduras were terminated. Is that true? I believe you asked, did I say I was not participating? That's, that, that is true. Is it, is it true, first of all, that the Domestic Policy Council was actively engaged in trying to influence the results of ending TPS designations for El Salvador, Haiti, and Honduras? I, I don't believe so, Senator. I, I had staff that worked on um, many of these issues. Did and you worked. check your calendar records based upon my question to see if you participated in any meetings on TPS? I'm, I'm happy to do that for the record. Would you Senator. please so and submit it to the record? Did you check your email records to see if you had any expressed an opinion <laughs> on terminating TPS designations? I'll, I'd be happy to do that, Please Senator. submit that for the record. Should victims of sexual violence be able to terminate the pregnancy were legal? Um, Senator, I, I don't believe abortion is a um, moral solution to any problem. So uh, the U.S. recently made an egregious and extraordinary threat to veto a U.N. Security Council resolution on gender-based violence and conflict over a reference to survivors' access to sexual and reproductive health. So if in conflict a woman gets raped, and ultimately, as a result of that rape, ends up with a child, a pregnancy she did not seek and was forcibly put on her. You're telling me that it will be your position at the position that you'll have to say that that woman ultimately cannot have access to a legal abortion? Um, Senator, I, I am pro-life. I, I believe that all human life is sacred and that human life begins at conception. So, so while I- So when you're raped, a woman has no rights. Senator, I find that suggestion horrific to suggest that a rape victim has no rights. Well, I, I find it horrific that a woman who is raped cannot choose what to do with the consequences of that rape. And that's exactly what you're suggesting is accepted. Let me ask you this. Can I um, Senator? Would you have, no, just, I, don't, I have limited time, and you're, you're, you're really not being very helpful in answering questions. Uh, you... Would you, if confirmed, speak out against laws that criminalize same-sex relationships and women's personal health decisions in public and private settings as part of your representation at the U.S. of the U.S. at the U.N. abroad? Yes, Senator. And I just, I, want, I must say, any suggestion that I do not have care for victims of rape, I find horrendous. I have had family members that were raped, Senator. Well, I, and I am, I am deeply sorry. But I accept your you, I'm not apologizing. Oh, I'm sorry. You should apologize to the women who are raped who you say have to live with the rape. It's pretty outrageous that you, at a UN uh, organization, are going to take that position on behalf of the United States. I don't think that is the view of the United States. Even those who share your view about the question of life very often have exceptions for victims of rape uh, as part of it. You don't suggest that that exception exists. It, it, it's very difficult to understand how you're going to promote U.S. views that are broadly held, even in that context. And, and lastly, uh, Ambassador Goldberg, this position is incredibly important. Uh, I look forward. Uh, I've heard some of your answers, so I've, some of the waterfront I'm concerned about has been covered uh, very much. Mr. Zuckerman, uh, I have two questions. One is that uh, U.S. companies keep coming to me, telling me how they are abused in Romania, 
how they arbitrary and capriciously have their properties confiscated, how their contracts are interceded with. If you are confirmed, I expect you to make that your highest priority. I will, Senator. And secondly, I will submit for the record some questions I have about a lawsuit that took place. I want a thorough accounting of it so that I understand what took place and what you're, I know that you believe that the, it was wrongfully brought, but I want to have uh, the information as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. The record will remain open until close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions. Thank all four of you for uh, your patience with us. Thank you for your willingness to serve. With that, the committee is adjourned. Oops, I'm sorry. You got to be speaking for seven minutes. I got it. What? What's the deal? Murphy came in before. No, he said he told me. Oh, you don't want to? No, I'm sorry. No, no. You are the star. You are the star. Rumbo's Thank you. So is there a second? Is Romney Gallon is back in in the second committee? Is Romney Gallon that's in? Yeah, he's coming. But here's his name.
The hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. And before we uh, begin, I want to mention that we have votes on the Senate floor that begin at 11.30. And that means that we will probably take a pause from time to time to go out and vote. We have three votes in a row. Votes are usually held every 15 or 20 minutes. So um, uh, my apology to those of you who are about to testify and also to those in the audience help you hope you understand that because of the voting schedule today, we will be having to take uh, two or three uh, pauses or recesses during these, uh, these hearings. We'll come back and finish the process. Uh, today, the committee is going to hold a nomination uh, a hearing for three very important issues in a very important part of the world. Uh, first, we're going to hear from Ambassador Richard Norland to be ambassador to Libya. Ambassador Norland is the foreign policy advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He previously served as ambassador to Georgia and Uzbekistan and as the deputy chief of mission in Afghanistan and Latvia. Among many other diplomatic posts in his lengthy and distinguished career, in the Foreign Service, Ambassador Norland was recognized for his service in 2010, receiving the Presidential Distinguished Service Award. Secondly, we'll hear from Ambassador Jonathan Cohen to be ambassador to Egypt. Ambassador Cohen was the Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations, and following the resignation of Ambassador Haley, he became the Acting Ambassador to the UN. He served in a number of roles as a career diplomat, including as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, Iraq, and Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Nicosia, Cyprus, in addition to posts in other missions around the world. Our third nominee is Mr. John Ricolta, Jr., to be Ambassador to the United Arab Emirates. John Ricolta, Jr. is the Chairman and CEO of Wallbridge, a global construction firm based in Detroit, Michigan. Wallbridge serves clients in a wide variety, wide variety of industries, from automotive, aviation, and manufacturing, to government, power, and energy markets. He was also the co-chair of the Coalition for the Future of Detroit School Children and the chairman of New Detroit, an organization focused on racial equality and the economic revitalization of the city. We're privileged to be joined by our distinguished colleague, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, who will be introducing Mr. Ricolta. There I'm, therefore, I'm going to postpone my opening statement, and I ask the ranking member to do the same after the nominee introduction. I want to uh, thank all of the uh, individuals to, for their presence here today, uh, but we're going to begin by recognizing Senator Rubio. So thank you, Mr. Chairman, for convening this hearing today on the nominees to these very important posts around the world. I want to briefly take a moment to introduce John Ricolta, who's nominated to be the ambassador to the United Arab Emirates. As you've already outlined, he's a successful business executive and also a leader in the civic community. Since 1993, as you've already said, he's the chief executive officer of a construction firm that's been uh, very successful. Uh, you know, the United States and the UAE have a strong bilateral relationship on a range of issues that are topical even at this very moment. And the two countries have worked together on the past on key security and economic issues, but there's a lot of work to be done. We must fill this position as quickly as possible, and I have no doubt that Mr. Ricolta will serve his country with great distinction, and it will represent the United States honorably and effectively in Abu Dhabi, hopefully once he's confirmed. So thank you. Thank you, Senator Rubio. Ambassador Norland, Ambassador Cohen, Mr. Ricolta, Thank you for your past service to our country and for your willingness to be here today and to accept these assignments. I want to express my gratitude for your willingness to serve the United States of America. Each of you will be serving in nations that fit with the jurisdiction of the Middle East Subcommittee. 
but the issues that you face within each of your countries will vary greatly. Your work will be critical in maintaining and strengthening our alliances with key partners in the region. Ambassador Norland, in Libya, you will face a fractured state with warring parties set on gaining control over the territory. I look forward to hearing your views on how to best address the current situation in Libya, particularly your thoughts on pursuing a ceasefire and supporting a UN process. Ambassador Cohen, while I concur with the administration that we should strive to strengthen our military and trade relationships with Egypt, ongoing human rights abuses are simply unacceptable there. Egypt's government still jails thousands of its political dissidents, including Americans. It must be a high priority to secure the release of these individuals. I look forward to hearing how you will influence the Egyptian government on the issue of egregious human rights abuses. Let me preface my introduction to Mr. Ricolta by saying that he has been a long-term friend of my family. John has had a long and successful career in the private sector, as I've indicated earlier. I appreciate his achievements in that capacity. I'm grateful for his friendship. He's also someone who's given back to his community, leading economic development and revitalization efforts in Detroit. I'm confident that our country will be well served by his experience and leadership. Mr. Ricolta, as you know, the United Arab Emirates is a critical partner for the United States in the Middle East. The UAE has three U.S. bases, including a significant naval base, and is a key partner for counterterrorism efforts. In addition to security, the UAE is a significant trading partner with the U.S., including with my home state of Utah. I look forward to hearing how you will work to maintain a strong national security and trade relationship with our partner in the Middle East. As you acclimate in your roles, I hope that you will each remain open and candid with the Senate and our committees to any changes on the ground you witness or ways that we can support you in maintaining and strengthening our relationships with your areas of jurisdiction in the Middle East. Again, I appreciate you all being here today and look forward to hearing from you. With that, I'd like to recognize the distinguished ranking member for his comments, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Senator Romney. Thank you to the nominees uh, and to your families uh, for being willing uh, to serve uh, in the case of our two career public servants, uh, not for the first time. And thank you, Mr. Ricolta, for being willing to step up for your country. Um, uh, let me just uh, add on briefly to Senator Romney's remarks. Uh, Mr. Norland, if you're confirmed, uh, you are going to confront a country that is essentially tipped into civil war eight years after the February 17th revolution that deposed Gaddafi, Libya has yet to find peace or stability, much less attain its aspirations for democracy and prosperity. Most recently, the renegade commander of the so-called Libyan National Army, Khalifa Heftar, has tried and failed to take Tripoli by force, and at great cost, more than 650 killed and 3,500 wounded just since April 5th. And in the wake of President Trump's outreach to Heftar, there is more uncertainty now than ever as to where the United States stands as this chaotic civil war spirals out of control. Next door in Egypt, as Senator Romney mentioned, we are increasingly seeing authoritarianism and relentless repression in the Arab world's most populous nation. Through a widely discredited referendum this April, President Sisi succeeded in amending the Constitution to allow for an exception to term limits so that he can stay in office until at least 2030. He has crushed his political opposition, tightened repressive policies targeting the LGBT community, rounded up writers, journalists, artists, and activists for peaceful criticism. Yet President Trump has praised Sisi for doing an outstanding job. 
and Egypt remains the second largest recipient of U.S. aid in the world. With that much money at stake, and again, with that, this much confusion about where the United States stands with respect to this campaign of repression, we need strong leadership in our embassy. And lastly, the United Arab Emirates is one of our most important partners in the region in terms of counterterrorism, political and military cooperation, and trade and investment. But that relationship is also amongst our most challenging. The UAE leadership has asserted an increasingly risky militaristic foreign policy. And many of us have a list of growing concerns with the UAE's conduct in Yemen, its aggressive isolation of Qatar, its role in Sudan, and inhumane and unfair detention practices and trials at home. It is not insignificant that this will be the first political appointee uh, to represent us in the UAE, a post that has traditionally been reserved for career diplomats, I would argue for good reason, but I look forward to hearing from uh, the nominee. Thank you for agreeing to accept these very challenging assignments, and I look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Senator Murphy. We'll now turn to our first nominee, Ambassador Norland. Uh, again, uh, we express appreciation to all of you for will your willingness to take on these critical roles. Your full statements will be included in the record without objection. So if you could please keep your remarks to no more than five minutes, we would appreciate it so that the members of the committee can engage you uh, with questions. Uh, Ambassador Norland, you may begin. Chairman Romney, Ranking Member Murphy, Senators, uh, this hearing will be the subject of immediate attention by the people of Libya as they look for signs of hope that the persistent violence in Tripoli will come to an end and a more secure and prosperous future for all Libyans will be achieved. The interests of the American people are also at stake with respect to ending innocent suffering, countering terrorism, stabilizing oil markets, stemming the human misery and political destabilization of large-scale migration, and forging closer economic cooperation. I'm honored by the confidence shown in me by the President and the Secretary of State in nominating me to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to Libya. If confirmed, I pledge to you that I will do my utmost to bring U.S. diplomacy to bear on stabilizing the situation and promoting these U.S. interests. The principal task at hand is bringing the latest round of fighting, which started in early April, to an end through an immediate ceasefire in Tripoli. Lasting peace and stability in Libya can only come through a political solution, and halting the current violence is a critical step to create the conditions for a return to political negotiations. De-escalating the conflict requires engagement with a broad range of Libyan stakeholders, including not only Tripoli and Benghazi, but also key constituencies like Misrata, Zawiya, and Zintan. Equally critical is frank U.S. engagement with outside parties that have influence in Libya, some with a presence on the ground, in an effort to ensure that foreign involvement serves to reduce rather than promote violence. I'm committed to working with a wide array of Libyan and international partners, and in support of United Nations Special Representative to the Secretary General, Hassan Salame, to reestablish an effective UN mediation process. This effort should build on the constructive talks between Prime Minister al-Saraj and General Haftar that took place in Abu Dhabi in February. I'd like to stress, the United States does not see Libya as the plaything of foreign interests. Libya emerged from colonial rule in 1951, and a strong sense of independence and self-sufficiency still fuels the people of this young and fragile country. We respect this. 
The United States' approach to Libya is pragmatic and rooted in the clear vision of a unified Libyan state that can stand on its own as a force for stability and deliver prosperity to all Libyans, from Ajabia to Zwara and Albari to Tobruk. I have no illusion that this task will be easy, but if confirmed, I will lead my team to build upon the work done by my immediate predecessor, Ambassador Peter Bodie, and the hardworking staff of the Libya External Office, temporarily based at the U.S. Embassy Tunis and capably led by Interim Chargé d'Affaires Natalie Baker. I am very conscious, very conscious, that if confirmed, I would be carrying forward the work of Ambassador Chris Stevens, who gave his life trying to bring peace to the people of Libya. I will do my best to ensure that Chris Stevens, Glenn Doherty, Sean Smith, and Tyrone Woods did not die in vain. I'd like to thank my wife, Mary Hartnett, for her unfailing support throughout my career, and our children, Daniel and Kate, for their service to our nation growing up as Foreign Service kids. They and their spouses, Jen and Phil, and our four grandchildren, Ellie, Cam, Mary, and Owen, bring great joy to our lives. Mary and Daniel are here today. Daniel came from San Diego. Uh, Kate is actually living in the Middle East working on refugee issues. Uh, Chairman, Ranking Member, Senators, in closing, it's perhaps fitting to note that I was born in North Africa, in Rabat, my father's first Foreign Service post. His last posting as ambassador to Chad was cut short when rebels based in Libya advanced on Chad's capital, toppled the government, and forced our, our diplomats to flee on French military transports after being pinned down for three days. So in my lifetime, I have seen North Africa begin its remarkable transformation. I have also seen it experience the vagaries of self-serving political leadership and the predatory behavior of external forces, including those employing terrorism in their distorted view of Islam. I have seen how instability in Libya can spill over into neighboring countries. In my own Foreign Service career, I have had the opportunity to serve in majority Muslim countries, to work on conflict resolution, and to address the challenges of great power competition. Taken together, I hope that if confirmed, serving as ambassador to Libya will enable me to bring a lifetime of experience to bear in a way that will advance our interests and promote lasting peace and friendship for the United States and Libya. Thank you. I stand ready to respond to your questions. Thank you, Ambassador Norland. Ambassador Cohen. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, members of the committee, it's an honor to appear before you today as, president, as the President's nominee to be Ambassador to Egypt. I'm grateful to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for their continuing confidence in me. And if confirmed, I look forward to working closely with you and your colleagues to advance U.S. interests in Egypt and the region. Serving our nation as a Foreign Service Officer for the past 33 years has been and continues to be a great privilege. I want to thank my amazing family, who unfortunately could not be here today, for their love and support over the years. And I also want to thank my Foreign Service mentors, ambassadors, deputy chiefs of mission, and assistant secretaries with whom I've served. In particular, I'd like to thank Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who encouraged me to join the Foreign Service in the mid-1980s, and with whom I had the honor of serving in Baghdad in 2003. My friend Stuart Jones, who was ambassador to Iraq when I was his deputy chief of mission from 2014 to 2016, set an example that I hope to emulate if confirmed. And Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, a national treasure who has been a steady source of wisdom, strategic thinking, friendship, and support since we first met over 25 years ago. As I had the honor of telling the committee the last time I appeared before you, I grew up in a California family that paid little attention to foreign affairs, and I began my journey to the Foreign Service in high school through involvement in Model United Nations and as an AFS exchange student. My journey continued in college studying international relations and Near Eastern affairs. 
Serving for the past six months as the acting U.S. representative to the United Nations has been a remarkable experience that exceeded what I dreamed possible in my model UN days. However, I joined the Foreign Service with the intention of serving our nation in the Middle East. And I'm particularly honored to have been nominated to be the next U.S. ambassador to Egypt. America's strategic relationship with Egypt is crucial to our national security interests. The U.S. is affected by Egypt's geostrategic influence on regional political, economic, and military affairs, its governance of the Suez Canal, and its demographic weight as the most populous Arab country. It hosts the headquarters of the Arab League and in February became the chair of the African Union for the year. Egypt continues to meet its obligations under the 1979 Egypt-Israel Treaty of Peace, which is the model for regional cooperation and stability. If confirmed, my primary concern will be to continue to shape our strategic relationship with Egypt in order to advance U.S. interests. Egypt is a key partner in countering potential threats to the United States and our allies. The Sinai Peninsula is the home to one of the most capable ISIS affiliates, and the Egyptian military campaign against ISIS Sinai province continues. In combating terrorism and promoting regional stability, President al-Sisi frequently acknowledges the importance of the U.S. role. If confirmed, I'll seek to ensure our counterterrorism partnership with Egypt continues to reduce threats to the United States' interests. Egypt is the second largest recipient of U.S. security assistance and one of the top 10 of U.S. economic assistance. The Departments of State and Defense ensure that U.S. security assistance is well-targeted to achieve bilateral security objectives, including encouraging Egypt to use its defense budget to purchase more U.S.-produced military equipment, supplies, and services. As Secretary Pompeo said during his testimony to Congress in April, we've told Egypt that CATSA requires sanctions on any person who knowingly engages in a significant transaction with Russia's defense or intelligence sectors. If confirmed, I will carry that message forward. The United States should have greater insight into the Sinai Peninsula to verify that U.S.-provided weapons are being used appropriately. If confirmed, I will request additional travel for U.S. officials into the Sinai as security conditions permit. I'll also urge Egypt to grant journalists more access to the Sinai. I know this committee shares our deep concern about Egypt's restrictions on the freedoms of expression, association, peaceful assembly, and the press, about protecting the rights of vulnerable populations, particularly religious minorities and women, about restrictions on civil society, including the NGO law, and about allegations of abuses by Egyptian security forces. I know that you're concerned about the reasons for and the conditions of imprisonment of U.S. citizens in Egypt. Let me assure you that I strongly share all these concerns. If confirmed, I'll emphasize the vital role that protection for the fundamental freedoms and rule of law play in the progress of democracies and in building prosperous economies. I'll echo the call of Secretary Pompeo from Cairo for President al-Sisi to unleash the creative energy of Egypt's people, unfetter the economy, and promote a free and open exchange of ideas. For that same reason, I'll also commend President al-Sisi for his support of religious tolerance and of the participation of women in politics. Embassy Cairo is one of our largest embassies, and it offers consular services to more than 68,000 U.S. citizens in Egypt. The embassy staff, both American and Egyptian, is committed to furthering U.S. priorities and strengthening our partnership with Egypt in sometimes difficult conditions. If confirmed, I look forward to joining their efforts. My highest priority will always be the safety and security of all U.S. citizens in Egypt. I thank you again for the opportunity to testify before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ambassador Cohen. Mr. Ricolta. Chairman Romney, Ranking Member Murphy, members of the committee. I would like to thank President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for trust and confidence that they have shown in me, and I am humbled by this extraordinary 
opportunity to serve my country. It will represent the interests and values of the United States and strengthen our nation's bonds with the government and the people of the United Arab Emirates. This relationship is critical to our national security interest and is moderating and stabilizing force in one of the world's most volatile regions. I would like to thank my family without whom I would never have been in a position to be considered for this job, particularly without the love, support, and inspiration of my family, especially my wonderful wife, Terry, for 43 years. She is here today with three of my four children, Eileen, Lauren, and Paige. I also have three of 11 grandchildren and many friends and extended family who are in the room today. And I could not be prouder of all of them for supporting me. My grandparents came to Romania, came from America to Romania seeking freedom and a chance for a better life. Our nation's values of hard work and gratitude combined with love of our country were instilled in my father. These served him well during his World War II when he was a held prisoner of war in Germany after his B-26 bomber was shot down. He ultimately moved back to Detroit, acquired a construction company by the name of Walbridge, and I'm privileged to lead that company today. Having grown this regional firm into a multinational enterprise of over 2,000 employees, this experience has allowed me to understand the complexities of international business and commerce. These large and complex projects have given me experiences and insights which will be extremely helpful to U.S. business interest. If confirmed, Promoting and developing U.S. business interest in the UAE would be one of my top priorities. If confirmed, I will lead the embassy in continuation of efforts to promote and maintain fair and reciprocal trade with the UAE. The World Expo 2020 in Dubai offers great potential to showcase American hist uh, American, the American story, ingenuity, and technology in the Middle East. I look forward to advancing American values to millions of visitors, many of them youth that visit our national pavilion. If confirmed, my highest priority would be ensuring the safety and security of Americans in the United Arab Emirates, including all private citizens who live and work in the UAE, as well as employees under the Chief of Missions Authority. I also believe that continuing our dialogue with the UAE on human rights and religious freedom represents another priority which I will work continuously to advance if confirmed. I understand that the UAE has been a key security partner for the United States and has joined us in several US-led coalition operations including against ISIS and Al-Qaeda. I would work closely with the embassy team as well as with the members of this committee to ensure that our security partnership remains strong. If confirmed, I will fully support the UN-led peace efforts by UN Special Envoy for Yemen, Martin Griffiths. The war in Yemen has taken on larger regional implications with the involvement of Iran and has created immense suffering among the Yemeni people. The administration's position on bringing an end to the conflict has been clear. Only a negotiated settlement can end this protracted war and unify Yemen. If confirmed, I will work to continue support for UN-led efforts to achieve a lasting end of hostilities and a comprehensive peace agreement in Yemen. I will also support efforts to address the dire humanitarian consequences of the conflict. I understand that 80% of Yemenis 
are in some need of humanitarian assistance. The international community must remain coordinated and strong in our response and in our efforts. All parties, especially the Houthi authorities, have to commit to lifting unnecessary impediments that slow down delivery of aid. The President has been clear. Iran is responsible for the May 12th and the June 13th attacks on six vessels off the coast of UAE and in the Gulf of uh, Oman. The Iranian regime poses a major threat to freedom of navigation and maritime security from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea. If confirmed, I will work and support the administration's efforts to keep the Straits of Hormuz open where 20% of the global petroleum passes. If confirmed, I will work tirelessly with the President Trump, my State Department colleagues, and this committee to protect and advance the interests of the American people. I will passionately and diligently represent our servicemen and women, business community, tourists, academics, the 50,000 American citizens living in the UAE, and others wishing to engage with the people of the United Arab Emirates. Chairman Romney, Ranking Member Murphy, and members of this committee, thank you for the privilege and opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Mr. Ricolta. Uh, the Ranking Member and I are going to both yield our time uh, for purposes of voting and letting Senator Kane offer the first questions. Thank you, and I will do that as long as you tell the floor to keep the vote open until I get there. I will. Um, thank you, and congratulations to all of you. These are very, very important nominations, and it's hard to ask all the questions that I want to in five minutes before going to vote. I think I'm going to focus on Egypt, if I might start with you, Ambassador Cornyn. It's good to see you again. Um, the death of uh, former President Morsi in a courtroom this week has got a lot of attention. There has been significant attention before his death to inadequate treatment of prisoners in Egyptian prisons. This is likely to be a significant uh, issue of significance. The UN has called for an investigation into the circumstances of his death. Death, you believe there should be such an investigation? Senator, thank you for raising the issue. It is, of course, a Prison conditions in Egypt are a broader issue of concern. Right. We have American citizens who are incarcerated there, and um, a top priority has to be insisting that the conditions of their incarceration are uh, decent, humane, meet adequate international standards, and that they're treated fairly under the law. Uh, in the case of uh, President Morsi, I've seen the comments calling for an investigation, and uh, I believe that if there are allegations of abuse, any time investigation should be pursued. The, the danger of not having an investigation that would have some credibility would be that this could easily lead to additional political turmoil, violence, the, a predictable response of folks in the Muslim Brotherhood side would be to try to ratchet up uh, protests, even violent protests against the government. So the idea of an investigation, it's always important to get accountability, but, but also a credible investigation can be something that can help maintain some order, wouldn't you agree? Yes, sir. Let me ask you about uh, the imprisonment of journalists in, in, uh, in Egypt. I, I was in Egypt and had a very candid dialogue about this with President al-Sisi when he was running for president, before he was president. And I basically expressed to him, look, you've got internal challenges with dealing with terrorism and things like that, and, and the U.S. will probably give you 
a great deal of deference in trying to make decisions about how you police internal security, but just friend to friend, we have a very difficult time because of our culture understanding journalists being thrown in jail for long periods of time. And these are not just journalists for Egyptian publications, journalists have been in jail for international publications, wire services like Reuters and otherwise. Um, I have been disappointed. Uh, we had a pretty candid exchange about it, but I've been very disappointed with the Egyptian government's record of continuing to imprison journalists. Since this is such a key value, value of the United States, the First Amendment, as ambassador, what would you do you can't dictate internal politics in that country, but what would you do to uphold the important values of freedom of the press um, and encourage the Egyptian government uh, to up their game in that regard? Senator, in, in public and private, I would make clear that the United States believes, and I personally believe, that having a strong democracy, um, having a prosperous country, having a stable country requires creating space for public opinion to express itself, including when that opinion is dissenting, without fear of retribution. Uh, and the case of journalism is at the center of that discussion. Um, and if confirmed, I would be uh, very happy to continue a conversation with this committee about how we can work together to advance that agenda with the Egyptians. But uh, I would intend to raise it at the most senior levels on a regular basis. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Ricolta, I want to ask a question about your um uh, opening testimony regarding flow of oil through the Straits of Hormuz. Do you, do you know what percentage of American energy comes through the Straits? American energy? Mm -hmm. American. What percentage of American energy comes through the Straits? Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with exactly the number, but I believe it's, it's, it's low. Uh, it, it's not uh, crucial to our country. We're pretty much self-producing right now. Uh, that's correct. Uh, Forty years ago, it would have been 70 or 80 percent. It would have, you know, nearly existential if there was anything challenging in the Straits of Hormuz to the United States economy. Um, and now it's relatively low because of the good fortune of American innovation in producing uh, domestic energy. Um, that said, there's an important global economic effect of problems in the Straits of Hormuz, obviously. But do you think it is the U.S.'s primary responsibility to be the to, to be the guarantor of safe passage through the Straits, or is that more appropriately an international responsibility the United States should play a part in because it's more other countries' energy uh, uh, resources that are at stake in this issue? I, uh, I believe uh, both, that the United States plays a very significant role uh, due to the uh, maligned activities of Iran at, uh, today, and uh, we have a, a special relationship with our allies, uh, both uh, UAE and others. But also there is an international responsibility given the fact that uh, they consume most of the oil that comes through the states. Of, the I, th states I think of that's an important point. I just want to make sure that we don't take upon the, the world's burden of being the guarantor when the Straits of Hormuz are no longer of the, the same existential importance that they were to the United States a few decades ago. We do have a role. That's, a, that's an important thing. But we need to call upon other countries to shoulder significant portions of the burden. Thank you for the testimony. And Mr. Chair, I'm going to yield it back to the lonely Senator Rubio as I leave and go vote. Yeah, I hope you'll tell him that I need to vote as well. Because, uh, and at some point here, if the folks don't get back in time, we may have to briefly recess till they get here because uh, we have an important vote. I want just to focus on Libya. I don't think most Americans are aware of uh, what a catastrophe this has turned into and how bizarre it is in some ways. 
Um, Mr. Norland, you know, and I'm sure in your current role as an advisor of the Joint Chiefs, you've watched closely a lot of the events there unfold. Uh, you know, briefly, we have the stalemate between the LNA and the, the GNA, um, the LNA controlling the vast majority of the territory, but the GNA posing a greater threat to their hold on that. And, and largely, it's unlike many of the other conflicts and parts nearby, it's not about sectarianism. It's just a raw power calculation. And then you've got all these proxies, and it's kind of a weird standoff. On, you know, on the LNA side, you have the UAE uh, involved. You have the Russians, who have about $4 billion of oil contracts and are trying to get more. You have the French. And then you have Egyptian help, primarily because they're concerned about their border and, and instability and, and so forth, uh, triggering over to them. And then on the other side, on the GNA side, you have the, the Turks, who want to position themselves at least as a regional and play big boy as a global power. And then you have the Italians, who are apparently involved to thwart the French and vice versa, so I don't fully understand that one. But our national interest concern there involves what appears to be a growing effort, still a nascent, but nonetheless one we have to be very cognizant of, that both Al-Qaeda and ISIS are taking advantage of this sort of stalemate and fighting to look for an opportunity to reconstitute an area of operation uh, that, uh, that, that was eliminated. And, and they're doing two things. Number one, they're using the conflict as a way to do it, but they're also, I believe, uh, taking advantage of the fact that because the LNA is now facing off with the GNA, the counterterrorism pressure against them is, at this point, virtually non-existent. So if you could share with us some of your insights or views about what we can do from the post to, to sort of keep an eye on all this. Well, Senator, I think you've characterized the situation uh, extremely accurately. Um, the fact is um, that the, uh, the, the fighting that's underway now cannot possibly uh, produce a successful outcome for any side in this, uh, in this situation. Um, any victory would be Pyrrhic, and um, uh, the United States uh, is absolutely committed to uh, working with all of the parties, uh, both inside Libya and with, as you say, a number of the interested outside uh, countries, uh, some of whom have a presence on the ground, uh, to, to move uh, with UN uh, support and leadership in the direction of a negotiated settlement. Um, the United States does have influence in this situation, both through the, the vision that we have, the neutral vision, uh, we, we don't take sides in this equation, um, but also through economic sanctions and other measures we're able to apply. And uh, if confirmed, it would be my role to do everything, to bring everything to bear that we can diplomatically and otherwise to, uh, to try to uh, end what, what, as you say, is a, is a needless and, um, and uh, terrible conflict. Thank you. And I apologize. We're going to have to recess briefly and uh, upon call the chair. And so the committee will stand in brief recess uh, until the chair returns.
short recess is over. <laughs> Ambassador Norland, uh, given the, uh, the fighting uh, with, uh, within Libya uh, and the, uh, uh, the disarray that exists in that country, uh, what do you believe uh, uh, should be our, our highest or our higher priorities um, as you look to that, uh, to leading our post there? Uh, Senator, I think the highest priority right now is to achieve a ceasefire and to get the, the parties, the, the key parties on the ground that are currently in conflict to uh, move to the uh, negotiating table and uh, search for a political solution uh, to the situation in Libya. Uh, the United Nations has been playing a very effective role uh, under Hassan Salome to um, try to get a process going. There was a success, uh, 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 an initial meeting in Abu Dhabi some months ago that had uh, prospects for success but has not panned out. Uh, and I think uh, if confirmed, my, my goal would be to apply um, all the diplomatic uh, interest and leverage that we can, uh, both with parties inside Libya, uh, in the east and in the west, as well as some of uh, the local parties, and then with outside uh, countries in the region to uh, influence the situation in, in the direction of a political settlement. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Cohen, um, Egypt has obviously been a long-term partner of, of ours and plays a, a critical role in the, Egypt, in the region. Um, but Egypt has uh, recently flirted with the possibility of buying fighter jets, as you know, from Russia. Um, Secretary Pompeo notes that if that sale were to happen, the countering America's ad adversaries through Sanctions Act would require sanctions on the Egyptians. Uh, I and uh, 16 of my colleagues have called on President Sisi to reconsider the sale. Uh, how do you believe we uh, and how would you approach Egypt on this issue? Senator, I think the conversation begins right where you started with Katza and um, the consequences of going forward with it. But it very quickly goes into a, a promoting American goods. I think we have better stuff. We have better product. And um, we are right now Egypt's partner of choice across the board, and we need to um, make sure that we remain a partner of choice. Uh, so my engagement would be to underscore for the Egyptians that the fact that about half of their uh, military inventory is American is for a good reason, because they chose the best they could get. And I think it's important that we continue to encourage them to buy our goods. I would presume as well that, that uh, our continued financial com commitment to Egypt, uh, particularly to their military effort, would obviously be influenced by a decision on their part to buy equipment from, uh, uh, from a, 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 a geopolitically hostile power. You know, the Egyptians have a long-standing and broad relationship with Russia on the commercial side, including military commerce. Um, but the U.S. relationship with them, I believe, is stronger. And uh, we will continue to strengthen that and grow our side of the account and work with them and press them and encourage them to reduce the Russian side. Do you have any prospect about how we could encourage them to uh, uh, reconsider their human rights policies, particularly with regards to imprisoning uh, 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 dissidents? Well, as I alluded to in my uh, prepared statement, my, my belief is that we need to um, underscore for them over and over again at a high level, publicly and privately, uh, that uh, 
progress, prosperity, and, and stability requires them to create space for a variety of views, including dissenting views, without fear of retribution. And that, that will continue to be my theme as I discuss this with the Egyptians. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Ricolta, uh, what are your perspectives on the priorities for the U.S. with regards to our security relationship with the UAE, and, and how, much you, how might you hope to advance those priorities? Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, our priorities with the uh, uh, UAE continue to uh, revolve around uh, national, our own national security and the security of the UAE itself. Uh, they are uh, being threatened uh, existentially by uh, Iran, and uh, the closer and the deeper that our relationship can be uh, would be uh, advantageous both to us and to them. Secondly, we have a significant uh, trade relationship with the UAE. Uh, today, they are the, uh, we, we enjoy the second largest uh, trade surplus at over $15 billion. And as I said in my uh, opening remarks, if confirmed, I uh, have every intention to see us uh, continue uh, that uh, advantage. And thirdly, uh, the, the UAE is a, a moderating force in terms of human rights uh, and religious freedom in the Gulf and in the broader Mideast. And uh, I would uh, in continue to encourage them at the highest level uh, to uh, continue to make uh, uh, modifications and uh, reforms uh, to uh, join uh, the Western world in terms of the democracies and uh, um, um, uh, freedoms that we have as uh, U.S. citizens. Thank you. Uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Norland, thank you for your commitment to the country and taking on this very difficult job. Um, you're going to face a very fluid situation when you arrive in Libya. And as I mentioned in my opening remarks, um, in April, President Trump called uh, Khalifa Haftar uh, as he was leading his failed offensive on Tripoli. And a public readout of the call um, made no reference to that offensive. And instead, the president seemed to praise Haftar for his ongoing counterterrorism efforts, a message that deeply perplexed our international partners, since he has been actively attacking groups we worked with to dislodge ISIS. Um, can you clarify for uh, this committee the U.S. position uh, on Khalifa Haftar? Yeah, Senator, uh, thank you. And um, as you can imagine, uh, as part of my consultations, uh, I've been exploring that theme. And um, uh, it's, it's clear to me that we consider uh, the Libyan National Army to be a, a key player in uh, any effort to produce a, a, a political solution to, this, to the situation in Libya. Um, and it was, I think, as I understand it in that respect, that there was a conversation between uh, the President and Haftar. Um, uh, I understand that discussion revolved around counterterrorism, uh, oil market stability, and, and the role of the LNA precisely in a political uh, solution. What, what I've found in the course of my consultations is unanimous consent across the U.S. government. There has to be a ceasefire. There has to be a movement towards a political uh, settlement that the United Nations' role in this process is key. And, and if confirmed, that's the path that I'll be embarked on. Uh, I'm glad you're willing to take on this job. You, I think, can understand how a phone call in the middle of an offensive that doesn't mention the ceasefire or the offensive uh, would be interpreted by the international community and our partners as an endorsement 
of that offensive, not a move towards a ceasefire. Um, but that is not your phone call. That is the president's, and I appreciate your willingness to take up this job. Um, uh, Mr. Um, Cohen, um, you, you talked about the importance of our um, security relationship with Egypt. Let me just ask you a general question. Uh, do you believe that it's appropriate to use uh, U.S. aid and the threat of cutoff of U.S. aid as a means to try to push a human rights uh, agenda in uh, Egypt? The situation is getting worse, not better. Uh, and I think a fundamental question is: Are we willing to deliver? Are we willing to deliver a message? Uh, to uh, CC that there is a line he can cross, at which point uh, we are no longer um, comfortable or bound to be a partner with them if they continue to ratchet up this campaign against political dissidents. Thank you, Senator. Let me take this in two parts. And um, the, the first is uh, that I'm, I believe in, and if confirmed, I will, of course, be supporting the law and the law that the Congress passes that provides the, um, the financing uh, has human rights provisions in it. And consequently, we currently have a significant amount of money that has not been released because those conditions have not been either um, met or uh, waived by the administration. So I think the, the path we've taken is completely appropriate. I also believe that the counterterrorism assistance that we provide is in our own national security interests. So we need to find, we need to be sure as we go forward that we are protecting and defending American national security interests, which are served by ensuring that uh, the Egyptians can um, prosecute counterterrorism against ISIS in Sinai, um, address terrorism in their western desert, address terrorism in Egypt's heartland. Uh, it's not just Egypt's interests that are at stake there, it's America's. Um, let me just sneak in uh, a couple questions for Mr. Ricolta. You um, uh, disclosed as part of your uh, process um, before the committee um, having some business interests in the UAE that uh, uh, may require you under UAE law to keep some of those um, companies open. Can you just can you just talk about the projects that you have um, participated in, your company has participated in, in UAE and the steps that you've taken um, in uh, coordination with this nomination? Yeah, thank you for the question, Senator. Um, from 2003 to 2013, my company did significant amount of business in the UAE. We, we stopped bidding in 2011. We finished the final project in 2013. All of our staff and everything was removed from the, the UAE and sent elsewhere in the world. Uh, secondly, uh, there are uh, contractual uh, obligations and guarantee, both contractually and by law, that uh, require us to give a corporate guarantee on those projects, uh, uh, if you will, uh, the fact that if something were to go wrong, uh, they could come back at us. Uh, that is the only thing, and we could have closed down our our LLC that was working there, but as a practice for tax purposes, we leave those open until the final uh, guarantees are, are completed. Do you, uh, have you had other business in the Middle East uh, over the past, over that period of time? Well, we did work in uh, Doha uh, on one project, but the projects were primarily in the UAE and in Doha, and the Doha project was uh, obviously back then um, conducted out of the uh, Dubai office. but. Everything has been shut down, and we have 
absolutely no intentions of going back. In fact, I'll make it a little stronger. We will not be going back to doing business there. In, in the region, in the in Middle the region, East? Yes. And uh, will you make that commitment once you leave this post as well? Yes, I would, personally. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, uh, Mr. Ricolta, uh, in, in just a moment, uh, Senator Menendez, uh, who is the uh, regular ranking member, will be joining us and, and wants to ask questions of the, the three. Uh, but anticipating his arrival, uh, let me first ask you, uh, it, is, it is a departure from um, some precedent to have an individual service ambassador to UAE other than a career um, uh, foreign uh, service representative. Uh, what are your thoughts about that assignment? Is there, does it represent a, a disadvantage not having that Foreign Service background to be able to serve in this regard? Or do you believe that, that your experience will prepare you appropriately uh, to serve in this critical spot? I, I, I think the difference between a, a career uh, ambassador and a political appointed ambassador are quite different. I think each brings uh, different qualifications to the job. Uh, I certainly will be at somewhat of a disadvantage on the career side of all of the experiences that they have. But on the other hand, I bring uh, other experiences that I think will be very, very beneficial. Uh, on the side of perhaps being a, a bit at a disadvantage, I would submit to you that I will be using the embassy staff in the State Department to probably a greater degree, relying on them, at least in the initial phases, uh, for a lot of advice. Uh, and guidance, and um, uh, you know that's uh, that's pretty much my answer. Great, thank you, uh, Ambassador Norland. Um, I appreciate that in your uh, opening statement you made reference to the loss of life uh, associated with um, uh, those who've served in in Libya, and and. Uh, uh, want to underscore the debt uh, that we owe to them and their families and appreciate your, uh, your recognition of those individuals. Um, I, I, now having um, uh, seen what happened there and recognizing your assignments in other ambassadorial posts around the world, uh, how, how confident are you in, in the, uh, uh, the effectiveness and the sufficiency of our security resources in, in protecting the lives of our uh, men and women who serve in the Foreign Service in, uh, in Libya and in this part of the world. Well, thanks for your concern, uh, Senator, and your interest. Um, in fact, because of the security situation in Libya in, in, the, in the recent uh, few years, uh, our diplomatic activities uh, in the, regarding Libya have been conducted out of our embassy in Tunis uh, for security reasons. Um, our uh, chief of mission has periodically gone into Libya uh, in cooperation with the uh, military forces from AFRICOM on short uh, day trips to try to conduct some diplomatic activity on the ground. Um, but that's a heavy security load uh, to conduct missions like that. Um, and uh, at the moment, I think we're grappling with the question of how, how do we uh, maintain an effective diplomatic presence uh, with a finger on the pulse of what's going on in Libya but in a way that protects our people. And uh, if confirmed, uh, that's the balance I would need to strike, uh, putting a primary emphasis, of course, on the security of our people, but also trying to find a way to maximize the effectiveness of our diplomatic presence. Thank you, uh, Ambassador. Uh, I'm gonna uh, uh, yield the rest of my time to, to Ranking Member Menendez, who's just joined us. Uh, he'll ask questions of the if you're ready for that, of the, of the panel. And, and uh, uh, Senator Menendez, uh, when you finish asking your questions, you can complete the, uh, 
the panel. We've, uh, re rest of us have all had our questions and we've had our opening statements. Well, um, I'm gonna have to run and go vote, uh, but for benefit of those that might care, I will come back to uh, say, yeah. express my appreciation to each of you. If you're still here, it won't take me that long to vote. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for the courtesy in keeping the hearing open. Uh, uh, gentlemen, congratulations on your nominations. I uh, was delayed on the floor because of uh, votes that we were having on uh, rejecting Saudi arms sales, so uh, I had to be there for that. Uh, Mr. Cohen, uh, I appreciate your distinguished service uh, to uh, our nation, most recently at the United Nations. Um, this uh, assignment to Egypt is one of the critical ones in my, in my view. Uh, I have serious concerns about the erosion of political and human rights in Egypt, uh, the systematic choking off of avenues for legitimate dissent, uh, and the threat that, is, that poses for Egyptian stability. Uh, I am concerned uh, about Americans who seem to be arbitrarily and capriciously imprisoned. Uh, I am concerned uh, about uh, the ability of Egyptian civil society to speak. Uh, I am concerned about the protection of Coptic Christians inside uh, of Egypt. Uh, I am concerned uh, about Egypt's moves through changes to its constitution in a way uh, that seeks to extend indefinitely uh, almost the uh, time in which President el-Sisi can be in office. And I am seriously concerned about what Egypt is doing uh, with uh, General Haftar in Libya, which I think uh, sends us in all the wrong direction. So this is an incredibly important assignment. So speak to me about what points of leverage do you see the United States being able to use for, with the Egyptian government to improve its human rights record? If you're confirmed, will you commit to publicly raising concerns regarding political and uh, human rights in Egypt and meet with Egyptian uh, civil society actors? Yes, Senator, I do. Uh, okay, you, you, you have not perfected the State Department's endless answers, so I appreciate that. So uh, uh, that, that works great. Uh, will you uh, uh, help us address challenges facing the Coptic community in the context of broader uh, human rights concerns in Egypt? I will, Senator, and, and let me say this about the Coptic community. We've seen some progress. There's a way to go, but President al-Sisi uh, has undertaken a reform of public school textbooks. He's uh, instituted a national committee uh, to combat incidents of sectarian uh, violence. He has granted um, permits to some 900 previously unlicensed Coptic churches and has uh, permitted the construction of some, some new, 14 new churches, I believe, over the last couple of years. So there is, um, there is some progress. There's more work to be done, but this will be a high, high item on my agenda. Thank you. Uh, what, uh, with the recent amendments to Egypt's constitution uh, eroding the independence of Egypt's judiciary, given President Sisi the power to hand-select the heads of judicial bodies and allow him to extend his rule, uh, which also expand the military's influence over government, politics, and society, what avenues are left for free and uh, transparent political processes? What implications 
uh, does that kind of political repression have for long-term stability? Senator, our, our and my, my personal goal, if confirmed, will be to promote a prosperous and stable Egypt. And a prosperous and stable Egypt needs to be one where, as I've said several times today, and uh, excuse me for repeating myself, uh, one that makes space for a range of opinions, for dissenting voices that can be expressed without fear of retribution, um, for a marketplace that has a more level playing field between public and private sectors, uh, for one where abuses by security forces are, uh, are met with accountability. Uh, as I, I share many of the concerns that you outlined in your uh, initial, initial statement, and uh, if confirmed, I will work um, tirelessly and make statements both in public and in private along these lines. Yeah, thank you. Now, let me ask you uh, finally, at least for in this public session, I'll have some questions for the record, but uh, how will you engage Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian government as well as your colleagues on this panel in neighboring countries? Are they confirmed to uh, push for a ceasefire and a political solution in Libya? Uh, Senator, in my work at the UN, We've been uh, pushing for this for, for many months. And um, if, if confirmed and if by the time I get to post, we're not back at a political track, I'll continue to push the Egyptian officials at a high level and try and rally as much support from uh, my colleagues in Washington, including on this committee, to do so. Mm -hmm. and so let me ask you one overall arching question. So yes, we have some uh, interests aligned with Egypt. Uh, they're doing... Uh, uh, some critical work in particularly in our collective fight against terrorism. Uh, they seem to have a good relationship with our ally, the State of Israel, at least in the Sinai. Uh, they have the, ex the opportunity for exploration in oil that could be a game changer with others in the region uh, to help diversify uh, particularly European energy and move it away from Russia. Uh, by the same token, uh, I am deeply concerned that we have an ambassador who will, yes, understand those interests, but at the same time not be hesitant to urge President el-Sisi and the Egyptian uh, government to move in a different direction on civil society, on political freedoms, on the lack of repression, on, on not the arbitrary detention of U.S. citizens, uh, on uh, all of these things and our interests uh, as it relates to Libya, uh, will you feel free to do that? Absolutely. All right. uh, Mr. Ricalta, uh, we are uh, concerned uh, about the United Emirates in a whole host of ways. Uh, part of it has been their uh, part of a coalition that has created unprecedented humanitarian disaster inside of Yemen. There are credible reports about Yemeni detainee, detainee abuse allegations. I have real concerns about their transfer of weapons that we have sold to them, to entities who we consider terrorist organizations. Are you familiar with these issues? Thank you, Senator, I am familiar. Uh-huh. And so talk to me about what you'll do if confirmed on the detainee abuse allegations and about the weapons transfers. Well, let's start with uh, torture. Um, I am uh, very, very aware, and I would press for a credible 
transparent and uh, uh, open uh, investigation to the highest levels of the Emirati government. Uh, I'm not a hesitant person. I have very strong beliefs and uh, uh, will make uh, both my personal voice and the voice of our nation heard uh, loud and clear as far up as I can possibly make it. Uh, would you please remind me what the second the part of Yemen the question weapon was? transfers. The, yes. There um, are published reports that uh, weapons that we sold to the United Arab Emirates had then been transferred illegally to entities and individuals who we have on our lists of terrorists. Uh, that is not what an ally does uh, when we are trying to help them with weapon sales. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, weapon sales and the misuse is a very serious allegation. I would again press for a very uh, in-depth uh, investigation, uh, prompt, uh, thorough, and uh, uh, you know I will uphold the law of the United States of America in the strongest possible way, and uh, will work with uh, my colleagues and, and the Senate to uh, uh, to um, you know bring this to the attention of the Emiratis and and, and to hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. I, I hope this will be two of your major undertakings. Uh, we, we have allies, but the, those, those alliances are not carte blanches. It is not carte blanches to violate human rights. It is not carte blanches to take our weapons, sophisticated as they are, like precision-guided missiles and other weapons, and then transfer them to entities that may be the Emirati's interest, but is not in the interest of the people of the United States of America. So I have your commitment that if confirmed, you will vigorously pursue both of these issues. Uh, you have my commitment. Um, there is also a question of the hiring of U.S. mercenaries. I'm very concerned by reports that the UAE has hired a U.S. firm with retired U.S. military personnel to conduct assassinations in Yemen and has hired former National Security Agency employees to build a mercenary espionage hacking unit that has targeted dissidents and opposition figures, including United States citizens. Are you familiar with this uh, information? I'm sorry, Senator, I'm not aware of okay. those allegations. I, I, I would ask you to become familiar with it uh, because we need to uh, take steps to investigate the role of U.S. citizens that may be playing in this mercenary con context and particularly in the spying uh, of U.S. citizens. Uh, lastly, um, are you familiar with the challenge that we are having in the Gulf of Qatar and the GCC rift? I am. What, do you, what steps do you think you can have the UAE take to resolve this conflict? Because at this point, all we're doing is pushing Qatar into the hands of the Iranians. Um, I would agree first that this is not in the U.S. best interest. Uh, the Quad blockade is secondly not working. And thirdly, I will uh, commit to you that I would work uh, tirelessly to solve what the underlying issues may be and to try to bring the Emiratis and the um, uh, Qataris to a uh, closer and uh, uh, better solution for both of them. Okay. I, uh, I, uh, I have other questions for the record. I ask you to respond to them substantively. Thank you. Uh, uh, Ambassador, uh, Mr. Nolan, uh, what uh, do you think you'll be able to do if confirmed uh, to promote the prospects of a ceasefire and resumption of the UN-led political process? And particularly, uh, I know the I share in this regard the administration concern about General Heftar. Uh, I had the conversation with the Secretary of State the other night on this, and in, in Egypt's uh, 
uh, role in this? So what do you think you'll be able to do uh, if you're confirmed in this regard? Well, that's a really important question, Senator. Um, I only ask important ones. <laughs> At least I like to think so. Anyway. Um, have to have humor here eventually, so get through I, I can tell you that I would uh, try to lend the voice of the United States uh, firmly and clearly in support of a ceasefire, um, uh, rededicate ourselves to that process in support of um, the UN uh, Special Representative, the Secretary General, um, Mr. Salome. Um, this process involves uh, engagement not just with the parties in Libya, uh, East and West, uh, but also with outside actors uh, whose uh, involvement uh, needs to be shaped to pursue uh, a positive outcome and to, to promote a reduction in violence uh, rather than, a, than promoting it. And so I think we're talking about a full court press, uh, which uh, I detect across the U.S. government, uh, an interest in pursuing that, and um, uh, I think having an ambassador uh, in the region uh, in Tunis next door, until we can get on the ground in Libya, uh, can lend added impetus to that process. I have uh, several other questions for you, but there is a new vote going on on these resolutions. So uh, I'd ask you to uh, substantively uh, answer uh, the questions I'm going to pose to you. It would be helpful for me in terms of agreeing to move your, your process forward. Uh, and with that, uh, in accordance to the chairman's uh, request, the record will close at the close of business tomorrow for members to ask any questions. If questions are posed to you, I'd ask you to answer them expeditiously so your nominations can be considered at a business meeting. And uh, with that, the uh, hearing is adjourned.